This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mildred DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lieber Mayer. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 114. I am your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Donovan. And this is Stella. And Joe is taking this episode off, and he will return next episode. We have a total of four books to cover. We are covering the news and comic books from the weeks of March 31st through April 13th. As I said, four books to cover, very small amount of news to go over, but uh, we do have... I assume some pretty decent discussions about some of the books that we are going to be reviewing today. So let's get straight into comic news. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. The very first thing we have is on April 5th. Uh, it was announced on the New York Post that Carrie Kelly is set to debut in Batman Robin. We are actually going to be reviewing this book in just a probably under the next hour but uh there was an interview that was posted with uh there there was some comments that were made by peter tomasi in this so i'm going to go through some of these it wasn't an interview so we won't read it like an interview um but uh tomasi says that carrie is a college student who's got spunk and speaks her mind she will be a little older than she was in the dark knight returns and its sequel, and she knew Damien when he was alive. Uh, she spe- he specifically says that uh, this is not an alternate Earth Robin. She is simply a girl named Carrie Kelly who we learn knew Damien, which in turn weaves her into the fabric of the DC Universe for the first time in 25 years. Uh, what you'll find out once you crack the book is that she's not exactly the new Robin, but I don't want to spoil the story and her introduction to Bruce Wayne slash Batman's life. In regards to how long she'll be around, let's just say that there's a hell of a lot longer than one issue. I've got plans for Carrie that play well into the future. And finally, he specifically states, it's all real, it's all in continuity, it's all part of the Batman universe in the here and now. Carrie Kelly has found her way into the New 52, and she's here to stay. In what capacity is anybody's guest? Except of except mine, of course. So, as I said, we'll, we're going to talk about Carrie Kelly and her involvement in Batman Robin. But uh, based off the announcement, what did you guys think of Carrie Kelly making it into the New 52? The first thing I did was laugh. Because uh, if you listen to the Robin special, I actually uh, asked the question, Hey, what would you guys think if Carrie Kelly would uh, appear in the main continuity? I think Dustin said, you know, I wouldn't like that because they would... Uh, it would be too busy comparing to Frank Miller and um, I love the history. And so, like, I think a week later, this issue comes or this news comes out and says, hey, Carrie Kelly is going to be in the main continuity right next to Batman on that cover. And I fell out of my chair laughing because I it's not as though I predicted this. I really didn't. But it was just a hilarious coincidence. Uh, and it proved Dustin wrong. So I'm always up for some of that. Um, but uh I get, you know, we're going to get to it in the main review. Uh, I am open to the idea of Carrie Kelly being in the new continuity or 
in the continuity. I just don't want her to be Robin because I think it's way too soon. Way too soon for Carrie Kelly to get in or way too soon after Damien's death? Well, I mean, like, we just buried Damien like two weeks ago, so <laughs> it's too soon for another Robin, I think. Well, I mean, do you want Batman walking around all morose, though? I mean, at least it's going to give him some sort of motivation, hopefully. Because otherwise, we'd just be reading, like, this emo comic. Do you think that would be... I don't know if Batman needs to be, like, emo just because he has no Robin. I don't know, because to me, it's like, he doesn't... I don't know if I want to say that Batman doesn't need a Robin, but I think in this current status quo with all the parties he has, I think he can go some time without Robin, and it doesn't have to only be emo gothic BS. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh... I don't really remember what I said on <laughs> the special, so I don't want to. I'll just say that flat out, so I don't. Um, so it doesn't seem like if I say something different that I'm being a hypocrite. Um, it's different. I think you know, Tamazi has a lot of leeway. I think with this character because really, because she only appeared in um, Dark Knight Returns, and I haven't read again or strikes again so i can't comment um but i think he's got a lot of freedom with the character to really make it his own so if dustin does have this concern about you know frank miller and and what what is tamazi gonna do uh to either live up to that legend i think that to a certain extent yes he does have to live up to the carrie kelly that miller brought in to the Batman mythos. But, I mean, there's so little about her, I think, that we know, except for, you know, her parents are basically the almost the worst parents in the world and smoke pot all the time. Um, but this, you know, this one seems, you know, wildly different. And uh, she seems, you know, kind of cool. I think we're just sort of getting into to what she's going to be like, and we'll certainly get into that more. But it'll be, uh, I think it'll be an interesting ride. And... I don't know if, you know, if we are led to believe that she will be Robin at one point or is this going to be some sort of red herring and someone else will turn out to be Robin and are we going to feel betrayed if we sort of have this character for a year and then all of a sudden some other Robin pops up. But, you know, for right now, I think it's fine the way it is and I I guess I just don't want to continue talking and we'll talk about it later. Red herring. My thought on this was basically I... I Yes, I did say I, I really didn't understand why she would get brought into the new continuity, but at the same point, um, I will say I was wrong and say that there is some possibilities. Um, I just didn't see it actually happening when I commented on this before, and that's part of the reason why I said what I said. But uh, I think that if Tomasi is the person, well, obviously he is, he is the person, but if he's going to be the person who's going to, you know, cement Carrie Kelly into the current, or, you know, normal continuity for DC Comics and not just have her in the Frank Miller books, I'm okay with that. Um, and I'll talk more about Carrie Kelly later. Alright, so then the next bit of news that we have is on April 8th, the solicitations were released for July. And there isn't, as usual, a whole lot of surprises. We do have a couple of annuals that will be hitting the stores, including Batman Annual Number 2 and Detective Comics Annual Number 2. Uh, July will also see the final issue of Batman Incorporated with Batman Incorporated Number 13. Uh, DC is all, already preparing for uh, Batman Year Zero 
or Zero Year. I don't know which is the correct name because there's two different titles on this one thing. But uh, they're already expecting that the first issue is going to do so well that they already are re- saying that they're going to release a director's cut of the number one issue in July. Um, for whatever reason, the cover says Zero Year and the title is called Batman Year Zero, the director's cut. So, no idea there. Um, in some of the other books, Batman is going to be teaming with Catwoman in the pages of Batman and Robin. Uh, Batwing will be coming to Gotham City and, uh, and we assume leaving Africa for possibly good. We do not know exactly based off that solicitation. We will also see the first printed copy of Batman 66, um, as that is, uh, the collection of the digital first series based off the TV series in the 1960s. Um, we will also see all of the other, all of the other books in digital form, including Batman Beyond Unlimited, Batman Arkham Unhinged, Legends of the Dark Knight, and Batman Little Gotham. Uh, we'll also see um, Batman appear in the Trinity War crossover, which will take place in Justice League 22, Justice League of America number 6, and Justice League Dark number 22. So, lots of different things happening within the Batman universe once um, July rolls around. It's like the song goes, Batman, Batman, Batman. Um, what was the last time we had an annual? Last year. May of 2012 was the Batman annual. Detective Comics annual was August of 2012. So it's been just about a year. Okay. So my issue with annuals, you know, and... I guess this is really redundant and I apologize, but there really needs to be a worthwhile reason for having an annual. I think that, I mean, annual does actually mean, you know, the year, right? It comes out every year, but I think it's got to be, it's got to be a great annual. Like I I really loved, I think the epitome of a great annual is the Batman and Robin one that we read uh, just because it was so full of heart. And of course it was right before he died. So we really got a, a good taste at what the relationship was uh, like at that point and, and who Damien was and how loving he could be once he got past that hard outer shell. And so uh, I, I don't exactly remember the Batman one. Um, detective, I, I just remember that it wasn't very good. And my question is, why do we have a Detective Comics annual anyways when we've boosted up the page size to 80 pages. So why not just have a regular issue instead of calling it an annual? And is it going to be anything special? That's just sort of my concern is, you know, it's just going to be like a regular issue, I feel. I mean, I could be wrong, but these annuals just come out and they take your money and it doesn't seem to give anything in return. In most ways, it feels as if the annuals are a great explanation for them to cash in on Batman even more so. Um, I don't know if that is always the case because I, I do think that the Batman annual last year that introduced Mr. Freeze into the New 52, or at least origin-wise into the New 52, I thought that was a pretty worthwhile story. But at the same time, it's really just, it, it, it seems that it's DC's way to make sure that they have something to come out on that fifth week of the months of the year that have the five weeks. So knowing that that is what they do, um, and the fact that this is the first set of annuals they're actually getting the second annuals, it's not that big of a surprise that, of course, it's Batman. 
their biggest moneymaker. All right, so the last bit of news we have is actually sort of a rumor. On April 10th, there was a rumor that started online, uh, originated from a website called Collected Editions, mm. and they found out that there is a book, a uh, Collected Edition book, that's called DC New 52 Villains <laughs> Omnibus that is set to come out. It's a giant-sized hardcover that will collect the Villains issues published line-wide in September 2013, spotlighting the greatest villains of the DCU. So as we know, September of 2012 was the year uh, was the month of the number zero issues, so this kind of makes it seem as if September of this year, which would be the two-year anniversary for the New 52, seems as if it's going to be the month of the Villains. Um, it's also rumored that there is supposed to be 56 issues collected in this book, so we can expect possibly some one-shots um, to derive from these books. Um, so at this point, it is a rumor, but uh, I would say pretty well that it's most likely going to be the case that uh, this is going to happen, because there, it wasn't so long ago that they announced a documentary. Uh, DC announced a documentary that they're making that is also supposed to release towards the end of this year that involves um, nothing but, it's, it focuses on nothing but the villains of the DCU. And in that press release they, that they announced it, it specifically said that 2013 was the year of the villains. So I would not doubt that this is the case whatsoever. All right, so with that, that is all of the news we have for this episode. So we are going to move straight into our books, and we're going to start with the largest of the four books, Detective Comics number 19. Oh, yes, uh, 19, that's the number, yeah. Special 80-page spectacular. Um, in this issue, we have the 900 by Jason Lehman and Jason Faybook, uh, Birth of the Family starring Man Bat, written by John Lehman and illustrated by Andy Clark. Uh, Mr. Combustible in Birdwatching by John Lehman and illustrated by Harik Johnson. Uh, Gotham's Finest in Through a Lens by John Lehman and written or illustrated by Jason Masters. Bane in War Council, written by James Tinian IV and illustrated by Mikhail Janin. And we have various pen-ups by people whose art you might like. So uh, this issue starts off with a bunch of bat- man-bats uh, running around Gotham City while we, uh, see Kirk Langstrom and a, an incredibly sexy looking friend, Steen Langstrom, seductively walking through the doorway. Uh, as Kirk says, I did this. This is all my fault. Again. Um, we see a scene of a, a woman and her baby being infected. And we see Batman heroically trying to stop the man bats with his new bat sonic gun. Cool, man. Uh, so he runs into, uh, one of the man bats and gathers his blood. Uh, he also talks to, he uses a detective comics hologram kind of thing to talk to Alfred, who's back at the Batcave working on this, uh, analysis of a cadaver who they ascertained was killed by Zaz. So, but that, uh, Batman says Zaz will, Zaz will have to wait. Um, he runs into more, uh, man bats and Alfred suggests calling the rest of the Bat family for a bit of assistance. But apparently this is, you know, be a dick to Batman day. Uh, Batgirl says, shut up. I know what I'm doing. Dick just totally ignores him and drives heads towards Chicago, where we'll find out uh, his adventures in the next issue of Nightwing. And um, essentially, Batman tracks down uh, he tracks down Zaz, who's turned to a man bat himself, and they get into a bit of a scuffle at uh, Zaz's apartment. They fly out the window and run into Batwoman, 
who was also mad at Batman for uh, reasons that are explained in Batwoman number 18. She introduces him to the uh, the Langstroms for the first time, and Batman is surprised because this is not the man bats of Talia, because as we all know, Talia created the man bats. Um, they, they explain their science and how it's their fault. Kirk says that, you know, the only way to uh, stop everyone from becoming a man bat is to, I'm not exactly sure how this works, but inoculate uh, or infect himself and he'll become a man bat, but I suppose his genes or something will spread across the city and help turn people back to normal. So he saved the city at the cost of his own humanity. Um, Zaz kind of moons at Batman and says, you know, uh, Batman says, you know, who's behind this? Uh, the penguin? He's in Black Cave Prison. No, not that bird man. Not the little bird man. The big bird man. The Emperor Penguin. And we end this story with uh, Emperor Penguin I don't know what he's flirting with uh, Poison Ivy saying, hey, baby, I believe you owe me a favor and I'm here to collect. Um, so that's to be continued. Um, the next issue is a flashback uh, issue. The next story is a flashback story with uh, Francine Langstrom looking out the window. I assume this takes place right after this, this story we just read. And uh, she thinks about how when she first met Kirk Langstrom and they got married and she found out how much conviction he had in working with bats. And essentially, the story ends on her deciding to become a man bat herself to find her husband. And we end on her uh, quaffing down a vial of chemicals. Uh, the next story is Bane in War Council. Bane's in Santa Prisca again. I don't know why I would go back there. And um, he's training some other criminals who, I gotta imagine, are hooked up on some sort of venom or mutagen. And tells them that they are trained to go up against the... Um, the um, the Court of Owls, because, as is explained, they were going to attack Gotham City uh, on the Night of the Owls, but were taken down by the Owls, and uh, made. And he's just sort of obsessed with, you know, finding and destroying them before he goes after Batman. We get a flashback to that terrible Batman, the Dark Knight issue where he falls off the cliff. And he was set upon by... I forget this guy's name. The, the, the character from Talon, who with a beard, who's basically like uh, uh, Calvin Rose's... Sebastian? Um, Sebastian Clark. Thank you very much, Sebastian You're Clark. You're welcome. Um, it's nice to have friends. <laughs> <laughs> so um, basically, Bane is gathering an army to fight the Court of Owls, which is pretty cool. And um, spoiler, he's going to be in town. The next issue, or the next story, is uh, everyone's favorite villain, Mr. Combustible. He basically is uh, robbing. This is during the the the, the Man Bat uh, siege. He's robbing a jewelry store, and the, all of his goons are wearing masks, and you know. This one guy is trying to scratch his nose, so he lifts up his mask, and Mr. Bustle's like, ah, nuts, kill him, because he turns to a man bat, and uh, that happens. Uh, essentially, he's telling Penguin uh, later on, via, you know, his uh, his uh, one visitor in prison about the whole situation and how uh, Ogilvy as Emperor Penguin is, you know, cleaning up the Gotham City, and uh, Penguin says, oh, don't worry, I'm going to threaten the judge, and I'll be out of jail in no time, so that's that story. Um, the next story is basically a story of uh, GCPD talking to one of their own who's in the hospital about, you know, fighting crime in Gotham City and uh, fighting the Joker and the Man Bats. And um, Batman's always there to help them out. And that's essentially that one. And we end on a very nice image, which saw at Comic-Con, of uh, Batman and Joker, you know, reenacting the final image of Killing Joke by Dustin Wynn. And that's the end of... Detective Comics number 900. I mean, number 19. Uh, so this, that was, uh, essentially, this is an 80 page spectacular because were the new 52 not to have happened, this would have been the 900th issue of Detective Comics. 
And seeing how Detective Comics is, you know, the premier DC Comics book, and obviously Batman first appeared on there, and it's their oldest running uh, title. Uh, this is a very generous, obvious, and easy to answer question. How do you two feel they celebrated this uh, milestone? My simple answer to this is, well, they just basically gave us a ton of stories that in some way intertwined, but uh, it kind of goes back to what Stella said about the annuals. This just felt like a reason for them to put more pages in, put more story in, and in turn raise the price to get more money from us. I... Let's see here. I I do definitely agree. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that this is going to definitely be a, a a way to get more money from you. I do like sort of the spirit of it in the fact that this is getting back to, you know, the silver and bronze age where Detective and then Batman Family and then when Batman Family died and became detective uh had all these different stories so i do like that now they weren't necessarily intertwined like this they had different characters in different stories this seems a little bit too contrived in that we're going to do this 80 page thing but they're all going to connect i don't think that's necessary i think that you can have an awesome 80 page book and highlight different characters but those stories could be separate I think it's cool that we're bringing back Man Bat and we've got Langstrom and he was in the Detective Comics in the the 70s and the 80s mm-hmm. and he had his own stories and sometimes he sometimes he was working with Jason Bard sometimes he was with Batman I think like if you treat him separately that could definitely work um I think in the beginning since we're introducing him that way I think it's fine that they're working together and it is all matchy matchy um but then you've got Bane which sort of comes out of nowhere and doesn't really connect with anything except for the uh the talent stuff so i wonder if it's going to continue in this vein that everything is really working hand in hand or are we going to have these great sort of separate stories that follow up on different characters that we love or start bringing in different characters that we've not seen in the new 52 before so the spirit of it uh just the idea of bringing it back having different stories with different characters i think it's great execution right now is not as great yeah, uh, I gotta be honest, uh, cause we were kind of talking pre-recording about our general feelings on 80 page spectaculars. And, um, I honestly found this one to be, like, like one of the more inoffensive, uh, 80 page giants. Um, the multiple story, I actually didn't think about it, but Stella's right, the multiple story kind of aspect where we told different stories with different Bat- Batman characters, not Batman necessarily, that really does feel old school. And I, and I think that's a, that's a really nice, understated way to have a, uh, a, detective, a detective comics anniversary and including man bat is just another sprinkle in that particular ice cream um <laughs> i thought that uh the main story was solid um i have an issue about that which will be the next uh, talking points but uh i thought generally it was a very straightforward solid story i don't think any of these stories were actually bad i thought they were all fair i thought the main storyline that's going to uh, go show up in talon sounds pretty interesting that's a, that's a cool idea um, I thought that the, 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 the Gotham City Police one, it was, it was probably my least favorite one. Not that it was bad, but like, I thought, I've seen stories like that kind of, uh, done better, but it was okay for what it was. Uh, the, uh, Francine Langstrom one where, uh, basically he's gonna, you know, it's more of the prequel to like, like the Detective Comics version of Terror in the Sky, uh, which is BTAS episode. Um, 
what else? What other stories were there in this thing? Um, the Mr. Combustible one. That was, that was a throwaway. I suppose it's a, a prequel, prequel to, uh, other stories down the pike. I thought these were fairly solid. I mean, I, they weren't, they weren't great in any means, but like, they were fine. I mean, I don't think, I can, I can't really say a bad thing about them. I think that, uh, overall, I think the, the man bad stuff was kind of interesting as far as introducing him into the new 52 and kind of giving him an origin right there. Um, the, we see the, even further exploration of his origin by delving into that story with Francine. Um, although I, I do find it just a tad odd that right away she turns into, you know, a man bat too. That to <laughs> me was just, seems just a little far fetched. But I guess, I guess we're going to have a man bat couple fly in the skies in Gotham. Aww. The, uh, the penguin story and everything that dealt with Emperor Penguin. It just really is leading up to whatever their, whatever layman's got planned. The, I did find it kind of interesting, the story that they had with Bane, um, leading to what's going to happen in Talon, only for the fact that, um, I don't know if you would even consider that one of the backups just because it wasn't written by layman or if it was part of the main issue. It's hard to tell because there was so much stuff, so many different stories in this book. But I do find it kind of interesting that they set it up so that way Talon, you know, bam, here it is this month. At the end of the month, it's going to come out and Bane's going to be in it. And he'll be like, oh, well, oh, you don't know why Bane's going after Talon? You don't know? Well, hey, go buy this giant, go, go buy this, uh, giant issue that costs you more money than a normal issue and then you'll find out. You know you want to. And to me, I just find that a little bit odd because they could have explained that in Talon. They didn't have to do that in Detective Comics. I'm not saying it's a bad story. I think it, it did a decent job of, uh, tying a lot of the different things that Bane has appeared in the New 52, which we don't tend to see. Sometimes we've seen some of these characters, but then they just somehow magically their, their previous appearances, specifically appearing in Batman the Dark Knight, have been ignored. Um, we saw that with Scarecrow, and he appeared in David Finch's run on uh, Batman the Dark Knight, and then it was completely ignored when Ger- Greg Hurwitz came on the book and basically told the Scarecrow story pretending as if Scarecrow never appeared in the New 52. We saw the exact same thing um, with, uh, I can't remember who it was, but who didn't make an appearance in Batman the Dark Knight during David Finch's run? I mean, he basically had everybody and anybody in that book so that he could draw them. But um, I do think it's kind of interesting that they even incorporated that horrific story to explain why he was involved in that. Um, I don't like that he's this ginormous hulking figure. He is dialed back a little bit from his appearance in Batman the Dark Knight, but uh, I still think he's a little bit too hulking. I like it better. I like him better from more of the muscular man. Yes, he's on Venom. Yes, it makes sense that he's on Venom and he's super muscular, but he just seems too abnormally muscular compared to anybody you could possibly think of. And it's almost impossible to believe that Batman would somehow be able to beat him in a fight if he was on the Venom. Except, you know, the typical, let's throw a battering at the hose that supplies the Venom. So, um, that was the one story that I had a problem with. But, uh, the, but the rest of them, to me, they all intertwined in some way because we saw the Francine story take place after the main story with the Man Bats. We saw the Mr. Combustible story take place in 
kind of in the middle of the the main main bat man bat story we saw the 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 scene at or the story at the end with the gcpd cops that took place after because one of the cops was in fact one of the man bats so i i kind of like how they intertwined i do think it yes it was kind of like a throwback to the older books and the multiple stories in the one book but i think it was really cool how they somehow all intertwined in some way not necessarily you had to read one to read the other but i think it was cool how they all connected in some way uh, do you think, would you like to see that continue where they are all interconnected or do you think at some point they do need to have their own separate stories? I think that it would be interesting to see that um, because there's certain characters that don't need a full story. We don't need to see an entire issue dedicated to Francine Langstrom. We don't need to see an entire issue dedicated to a cop who was a man bat. So to me, it, that that works, and honestly, for backups, those make sense. And if they were just to reformat the this whole backup thing that they've got this that they're they've been trying to do for a while now, it, it to you know just having a bunch of stories in one issue, I wouldn't mind even if they raised the dollar raised the price a dollar more on top of what it already is even though you're paying that dollar for that one backup that almost never is 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 warrants the extra dollar i wouldn't mind paying 2 dollars on top of the normal price so 5 dollars for detective comics or i wouldn't pay 5 dollars for batman it wouldn't make sense in detective comics i'd pay 5 dollars a month for detective comics if it was doing something very similar to this where it had all kinds of different stories relating to all kinds of different characters, because then we would see focus on all of these other characters that are in Gotham City, that are in the Batman universe, that aren't, in fact, focused on because there's so many books that are so dedicated to focusing on nothing but Batman, even though he somehow miraculously is in 50 places at once Mm -hmm. every month. I, let's see here, I did forget about the cop stuff, and I think that that is always something that uh, we need to see, but it's just so neglected now in the new 52. And I just remember the, the Gotham city police stories, uh, that were going on pre new 52 and, and Nightwing being an officer at one point. And I think it's just great to see that. Um, and Hey, we're bringing back <laughs> a cop. That's been a while that we've seen. And you can tell that this is going to be an ongoing story since she sort of got a partner at the end of it. I did wonder, one of the things I wondered about the Bane story was, were they getting rid of sort of the original Amigos that Bane had with him and replace it with these guys, like Bird? And do you remember that? Do you remember those people? Like, are they just not, does he just have a whole new crew that he's riding with? I, I did really wonder about that. I don't, I don't think they remember nor care. That's, a travesty i mean yes it is <laughs> he he when he was first introduced in vengeance uh that was really awesome yeah and i mean they carried through they were with him during nightfall and everything <laughs> so hello i did not forget <laughs> um and i i guess i wasn't bothered by the size you know and dustin was talking about it i was trying to think about if i was turned off by it but i really didn't i guess think anything of it so um, we'll, we'll see. I guess I just found it really, um, uninteresting. Maybe that's not the word, but I guess I just 
wouldn't think that there'd be any other focus for Bane other than Batman because all of a sudden the talons are his main focus. And I thought it was very odd. And hey, let's get the talons. Let's remind people that they're not dead as if something else is going to happen with them. Uh, so I don't know. I just thought that was a little too forced for me. Um, one, one, one last minor point, because I mentioned it earlier, and we don't want to spend too much time on this, uh, is that this is technically, uh, the first meeting between Batman and the Langstroms in the new 52, and, per- <laughs> alright, personally for me, um, it's not so much that, because, you know, that's fair game, but, because Batman name checks Talia, he's like, he's like a soccer blue, these aren't the one from Talia. That to me kind of kind of gave me like like a uh, a, a uh, like a, a continuity hairball because Talia is using the uh, man bat serum that's specifically from Kirk Langstrom. I mean, like like in Batman Inc., like the man bat ninjas that he's going up against. That goes all the way back to Batman's son, where we see the Langstroms. And I know that like Batman Inc.'s continuity is different from uh, the two continuity a bit. Um, I suppose you can even say that like she knew about that before he did. But I was wondering if that, if that affected you guys' reading of the story. Because it, it did to me, honestly. It, it did really distract from me. Because I thought it was just an editorial nightmare in terms of... They didn't really explain it very well. And I'm wondering if uh, if, I just, if I'm just crazy or if that was something that you all also took notice of. So, so the way I read it was there was that scene where he is sitting in his lab. And there's, it's like a one-panel thing. And there's somebody taking the serum. We don't know who's taking the serum. But... I would assume that that was Talia. I think what it what the the way they're they're trying to make this be is that Kirk Landstrom has been working on this for quite some time. They did that whole story with Francine where they explained that he tested this on children and they turned into little bats. And <laughs> as much as that doesn't make any sense, and I don't know how anybody could, would consider him a a good scientist if he's ch- turning children into bats, but. Um, <laughs> I I have to wonder. Somebody must have found out that this was the case, and this would happen if you use this this thing. And then Talia just happened to get it, or stole it, or whatever. And that's shown in that one scene where somebody's stealing some of the serum, and then Talia has it, and she uses it to her advantage by using it for her Manbat army. Then in turn, he is he finds out like and it. it and this is probably, it's far-fetched, and I'm just trying to make it make sense, which is something I normally don't do. I'm trying to make it make no sense. You're full. But um, we see the scene, you know, we, we know that because of the events of Batman Incorporated, of what's happening right now, the Man-Bats have been flying around Gotham City, so he could be aware that, you know, that's, you know, that they're out there. But we know that the from the previous issue of Detective Comics, that that lady who wor- used to work for Talia al Ghul, who then worked with Talon, stole the Man-Bat serum from Talia and brought it to Emperor Penguin, and then Emperor Penguin gave it to Victor Zaz and did this entire contagion outbreak thing, which I'm not sure why they kept using the word contagion over and over again, since there's a pretty strong storyline related to the word contagion in mm-hmm. the previous universe, but Whoops. they did it nonetheless. <laughs> Needs a hint. It- and they then in turn create these man bats. Uh, you know, Langstrom finds out about it, or maybe he didn't know about the Talia situation at all. But because Batman knew about it, 
and he never associated that doesn't really do Batman a whole lot of justice because that just proves that well Batman's I guess not the world's greatest detective if he didn't figure out that somehow Talia didn't come up with this formula and it was somebody else that's pretty poor on Batman's part but <laughs> I think that it it does work as far as making it uh still Kirk Langstrom's formula and still Talia getting it it doesn't really work when you look at it from the perspective of how did Batman not know about this ahead of time, but that's it is what it is. I don't necessarily... I mean, I thought it was weird, but I don't think now I could really comment on it. Um, there are other things I think that upset me more, but I think that people certainly that are really, really attached to the Batman Inc. stuff, it would not make sense at all, but I think... Oh, I don't know. There's so many weird editorial issues going on in the universe that I'm just of the mind now that they're never going to get it right. So almost like we just got to accept what happens. But I do agree that it's weird. But I just wonder, like, well, is it ever really going to start or stop? As what bothered were? you more? What do you mean what bothered me more? You said there were things that bothered you more. Um, There was some stuff in – oh, well – <laughs> well, just the beginning of Batman Inc. when it, it seemed like the uh, relationship between Damien and Bruce took, like, put the car in reverse and went backwards, whereas we had progressed so far in, in Batman and Robin. So that was something that I thought was weird, but I guess that's just, that was like writing errors with Grant Morrison, but I feel like they could have just... Um, <laughs> told him, hey, maybe you should fix the dialogue here. But this, So there are things like that that I was more emotionally connected to because I was really liking the story. So because I'm not as familiar with Batman and Robin and everything that was going on, this doesn't uh, bother me as much. But again, I still saw that there was an issue. Okay. And uh, that is our thoughts on Detective Comics. All right, so Detective Comics number 19, I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five bad rings. Yeah, this is fine. I mean, I, 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 this, this is decent. Three and a half <laughs> out of five bad rings. Went from fine to decent. I don't even know how those relate. Um, Synonyms. See, I rated all of the stories. I thought that the 900 was the best out of all of them. And the worst was bird watching. I just thought, what in the world? It was probably the weakest penguin story that we've seen thus far. Uh, I guess overall it'd be a maybe a three, three out of five. All right, so that is going to give Detective Comics number 19 a total of three and a half out of five bad rings. Let's move into our next book, Batman number 19. Mother of mercy. It looks just like Bruce Wayne. You know what I'd have given for a death scene like this? Too bad I won't get to read the notices. Batman number 19, written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Capullo. The issue starts off where Harvey Bullock is on scene at a bank robbery at Gotham National Bank in the present time. Harvey Bullock is uh, joined by Commissioner Gordon, who, as he arrives, they find out that, in fact, it is Bruce Wayne who has a woman at gunpoint strapped to a, about 25 pounds of bombs. As 
He then proceeds to coax Gordon. Gordon says, well, it doesn't make any sense. You're a billionaire. Why would you be stealing money from a bank? To which, in turn, uh, Bruce Wayne jumps on a motorcycle and is about to drive off. And what's even odder is the fact that Bruce Wayne's shirt removes and we see the bat suit underneath his suit. <laughs> Commissioner Gordon is shot in the chest by Bruce Wayne. And then run over. And <laughs> run over by the motorcycle. <clears throat> and he drives off. Six days ago, Batman is driving the Bat Pod through Gotham City. He comes across the Reaper and takes him out very quickly. We then see an exchange between uh, Batman and Damien. And uh, they're talking about how the roses that the Reaper were using had a deadly toxin. And we find out that Batman is actually watching what they call cowl archives, as everything inside of Batman's cowl is recorded. Alfred approaches him and, and tells him, uh, you know, everything we've been through, maybe you should try to uh, think about some other things for right now. He then tells him about a funeral. Uh, Batman says that he uh, just can't attend a funeral. He then finds out that an architect that he once hired named Wade uh, is in fact committed suicide. Batman says that doesn't make any sense, pulls up the case, and is found out that there is a pending investigation on Wade for two murders. He then goes to investigate uh, Wade's office and finds the travel logs from his private jet stating that he was out of town while this was all happening. Uh, he then is approached by uh, Wade with a flamethrower. After he throws a batarang into his head, Wade throws, Wade runs off. Batman chases him through the subway and Wade gets away. Batman analyzes the DNA as earlier we also saw when uh, Commissioner Gordon and Bullock were in front of the bank. They also analyzed some DNA at some point too. They didn't really comment on it. But as it turns out, uh, this is actually the DNA of Basil Carlo, but his DNA has mutated to which now if he comes in contact with somebody, he now can become them completely and their DNA is is almost unrecognizable as being someone else. As in, Basil Carlo's DNA is no longer existent. Uh, then we cut to Wayne Tower where Bruce is approached by Lucius Fox. Lucius is asked about the funeral, to which we find out that Lucius is actually now Clayface. Clayface attacks Bruce and... We see uh, Clayface attacking Bruce, which we assume leads us to the beginning of the thing. Next, the Wrath of Clayface. We then cut to the backup, where we see a number of Gotham City police um, going into a building. There is something called a ghost light. Um, after a number of officers are have disappeared, Batman is on the scene to investigate when Superman approaches him and asks him if he wants to talk. Batman says he has work to do. I'm going in. Are you coming with me? Superman continues to make comments about how he feels lightheaded and feels nauseous. They then come to some magical symbols carved in the floor with some candles. One of the girls, which we is either dead or under some sort of trance. I assume she's dead because of the light that's coming from her body. Superman makes a comment about the reason why he feels the way he does is in fact because... Um, everything in there is supernatural and he doesn't do well very, he doesn't do well with supernatural elements. Uh, we then see the ghost girl telling Batman that it all originated from this one boy. Um, and then in turn, 
Um, they, she then points and says, well, how'd this all happen? And she points up to the willow Oh, the wisp and that is part one of ghost lights all right so batman number 19 there was a bunch of different things that happened in this issue none of them i remotely think were super interesting <laughs> but i will say uh the first thing i'd like to talk about is what do you think of basil carlo being introduced into the book um, this isn't the first time we've seen Clayface appear in the New 52, as, as I mentioned earlier. He also appeared in David Finch's run on Batman the Dark Knight. But uh, what did you think of this, uh, I guess, evolved version of Clayface as perceived in the main feature? Well, if, you, if his previous appearance was in Batman the Dark Knight under David Finch, this is automatically a better uh, appearance, uh, says I. Um, I thought it was good. You know, I'm actually looking forward to a story where Clayface is a villain. I can't remember the last time we've gotten that since, like, No Man's Land, to be honest. I mean, and I'm looking forward to Snyder's take on the character. I, I, I mean, I'm not gonna, like, you know, just dump all my thoughts, but I really like this issue. And, um, the fact that Clayface is kind of shown right up front to be the villain, or maybe even no, um, is interesting to me. Um, I'm not sure where the story's going exactly because this is a very straightforward, you know, Batman tale. He investigates, he does his detective stuffs, and, uh, yeah, he runs to a supervillain. But the way it's told is, is pretty, uh, pretty fun to me. I mean, again, this really isn't anything new necessarily, but, uh, you know, it's, it's more like, you know, business as usual, and it's the kind of business that we like doing, you know, it's, it's business with pleasure, as, as I shall also say. So, uh, I like how Clayface was portrayed. I thought the scene where he was Lucius, where Lucius like throws up on him, it's kind of cool. And um, Greg Capullo's art was really good, and I, and I like his version of Clayface, so uh, I dug it. I dug it a lot. Um, yeah, the throwing up. You know, I just watched Pitch Perfect, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was like a little too much, and too soon after that. Um, let's see, what do I think? To be on, I guess I'm a little opposite. Oh, would you believe people? Uh, our marriage is on the rocks already. A little bit opposite of uh, Donovan in what the marriage? fact, <laughs> in the fact that um, I actually liked. Clayface's appearance just that he was being manipulated by Ivy and I especially liked the backup with him and we saw how she was sending him those notes and little by little uh, there was sort of that plant pollen that was taking over his mind I thought oh wow that is really inventive but it, so his first appearance I actually thought was really good obviously he wasn't a big villain but I think that all these villains that pop up don't have to be the main antagonist all of the time. So it's a good lead-in. Now, if he's going to be the big uh, main villain for this, uh, then I guess it'll be interesting to see where he goes. And, of course, you know, something weird is up in the beginning, like what is Bruce doing? But I do wonder what his uh, motivations are because uh, I feel, I mean, it could could just be me, but um, I, I'm wondering why he's doing all of this here and what his backstory will be like and well i guess we'll we will see so i i i don't know what to say you know it was fine but again i just really liked how he appeared in detective comics here's here's my my concern with this my concern with this is they made this big long scientific explanation about the dna and how now his dna can basically is molded with the person just by touching them. Mm -hmm. What they don't explain, though, is how he gets the clothes. Yeah. Because 
there's a, there's a couple problems with what just happened in this issue. The first one is the fact that um, when he takes the form of Bruce Wayne, Bruce is wearing the bat suit underneath his normal suit, and we see Clayface remove the shirt, and then in turn the bat suit is revealed, and he, Gordon sees it. So how are they going to explain that? Number one. Number two. Clothes has nothing to do with DNA. Yes, I understand that he could take the form of the clothes, but how would he be able to take the form of the clothes without knowing what kind of clothes it was? Um, well, first of all, I mean, do we know for a fact that this is Basil Carlo as Batman or, uh, as Bruce Wayne in the, in the, uh, flash or in this first scene? Um, it's okay. Well, I'll say it's not said, but based off of the, uh, comments that they made, uh, about the tests that were rushed and blah blah blah, I was I was led to believe that that what that meant that it couldn't be Clayface because they they tested it and it wasn't Clayface. But then later on, when Batman runs the test himself and dives a little bit more into it, he comes up with the idea of well, no wonder ever, all the tests would come back as this isn't Clayface. So I assume that's what it was. Uh, we don't know if it's it's Carl or not. I mean, we could be just Bruce Wayne having fun. Um. <laughs> I'm not sure. Personally, it doesn't really bother me as much, you know, I, because this is clearly something that's going to lead into something. I'm not really concerned about how it works. And the fact that they show that Clayface is evolving, Clayface is changing from what we used to know. And, you know, he always could do clothes before, obviously, but now, like, because the clothes affects his DNA, I don't think it's, sort of, it's, it's so exclusive to clothes and DNA. Now, also with Batman, those are clothes that he would wear. But, uh, personally for me, I mean, I, I don't know the answer, but... As of now, it doesn't. I'm sure it will bother me next month. But uh, right now, it doesn't bother me. I do have to say, at least, you know, I think that as children uh, who lived and watched TV in the 90s, that if you can accept uh, Peter Parker and his black suit changing into a very nice Armani uh, suit, <laughs> then I think that we can accept that he, that uh, Clayface here, can reconstruct clothing fabric. Oh, no. I, I don't want him to make it seem like he can't re reconstruct the clothing, but I just <clears> have <throat> a hard time understanding how he would how he would know what the clothing was. Just by touching the outer clothing and touching Bruce Wayne's skin, he mm -hmm. gets the DNAs, which explains that. He touches the clothes on the outside of him, but it's not like he is... I don't, I don't even know what way, other way to put it, but like, you know, he's not, he's not submerging Batman or Bruce Wayne's body. I, it's not even submerged. I don't even know a way to say it. It's like taking a sponge and sinking absorbing. water. It soaks up. Yeah. Absorbing. He's not absorbing Bruce Wayne's body. So it, it's almost as if how would he have any idea that the, that suit is there if he's not touching it, if he's not actually seeing it. So that, that was the weird part to me, but see. it's, it's almost like, not even worry. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about is the uh, backup. Um, what do you think of the backup? This is James Tinian. Mm -hmm. It actually did say written by James Tinian, and it did not say written by Scott Snyder. Or you know, uh, you know, it's this is one of the f few backups that we've seen so far that it say that is specifically written by James Tinian only. Mm -hmm. Um, that was the fact with the Bane story in Detective Comics too. But what did you think of it? Because this is kind of a different take on some of the stuff that James Tinian has done. We know that James Tinian's uh, first issues 
of Red Hood and the Outlaws come out later this month. This deals with supernatural elements. Red Hood and the Outlaws has dealt with supernatural and sci-fi elements in the past. What do you think of this story just as a standalone story um, that is the backup for this book? Uh, personally, I, I enjoyed it from a world's finest perspective in that it was fun to see Superman and Batman team up. And, but I don't, besides Justice League, I don't think they, I don't believe they really had a world's finest team up since the New 52 started. Um, I will say that, that Tanyan wrote Superman a bit more alien than I'm accustomed to. Like, he mm-hmm. didn't, he didn't know what nausea was. And I thought that it was a little bit strange and like, uh, yeah. He had the whole, like, uh, supervision where his eyes became blank. And I'm not gonna say that's bad. I'm just, I'm just a bit more used to Superman, you know, being a little less alien than that. But I like the scene where he says, "You know, want to talk about? No, mm-hmm. you know, I'm your friend, Batman. I want to help. Care to take a closer look? Oh, you're asking me? Do what you want. I'm going in. That, that to me was very well done. Um, someone has an echo. <laughs> and uh, I am interested in this. Actually, kind of reminds me of um, Batman Confidential during that like four part werewolf arc that like we talked about a few years ago uh which was which as it was you know it wasn't bad it wasn't great but uh batman and superman going into like the supernatural is an interesting idea and uh mm-hmm. tenian's a solid enough uh writer to um to follow through on this so i'm actually interested to see where this is going and uh <laughs> clearly stella has opinions on this so i'll let her speak <laughs> uh no i uh i i definitely agree with you donovan so the marriage is back on uh that's <laughs> It, yeah, it, fe- it felt like Superman just, bloop, he plopped down to Earth, and this is like almost his first time here. It just, it, it does seem a little forced, uh, and he's been here for five years. I think that he'd get a little sick at some point, or a headache, super headache, or something like that. I also agree that, uh, I've, I think their pairing was, was written really well, uh, because this has happened before that Superman, after some sort of death, I, I explicitly remember Jason Todd's death, him coming, Mm-hmm. Him coming over and talking to him, and and I'm also thinking about that uh, Noel that we read that he comes over and he talks a little bit to him. So it always seems like he's sort of this bright light, and he he tries to help Bruce out because he knows that Bruce is dark, and so he tries to be this optimistic force. And so I think in that way, it certainly uh, was written well. And of course, Batman just basically trying to say, "No, I'm okay. Don't worry about it. Let's get down to business." The supernatural business, I it it. In my opinion, unless it's dealing with more of a um, an alien force, uh, I don't think it has. It, it just feels weird for me. Uh, it, it doesn't really seem like it. It fits as much as with another character. I think that you know, and I consistently say this is that Batwoman really seems to be the person who deals with this sort of stuff, and it's been like that for her from the beginning. So it seems like, hey, she's the character I think that does with deals with all this weird stuff. And so this is just like, huh, uh, I'm not sure about this. Now, if it turns out to be some sort of sick manifestation of Starrow, I guess I could be okay with it, though I don't think they'd put it in a Batman book. But, um, yeah, it just seems... It also sort of, I, I guess we could say that it, it seems like a Justice League animated, uh, episode just where some weird, you know, these kids decide to play with some mystic rites, which they really should be playing with, and then something bad happens, which is basically what happened when Grundy came back from the dead. So I, you know, I guess it could work, but it just doesn't, I feel like this is making its way towards or wetting our appetites towards that new series, Batman and Superman, whatever it's called. You know what I'm talking about, right? 
Oh, yes. Don't you think that was the purpose of it? Because isn't that being... It really feels like yeah. it. it. It even feels like the similar art style to it. it that's what it feels like. Yeah, like the break uh, pack. Overall. Um, in my mind, I didn't find a whole lot of problems with it, except for the fact that, yes, Superman has been around for over five years, and he has bound to come across something supernatural before. So... It, to me, yes, it makes sense that he makes the comments about, oh, my vision's kind of blocked. Oh, it's like a strobe light. Oh, I feel nauseous. Those comments are fine, but he never once says, hey, this normally happens when there's supernatural elements before they walk into the room. It's only after they walk into the room and after they know they're, they're dealing with supernatural elements that he then says, oh, well, you know, I don't deal with this very well. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, You've never had this happen before. That was the only part that I had a problem with. Everything else was fine. I don't really, I, I'm not a huge fan of the supernatural element that uh, exists in the Batman universe. I know it does. And, you know, if it tied, I, I don't think this is going to happen, but if somehow it tied to Justice League Dark, we've seen Batman has actually made an appearance in Justice League Dark a couple times mm-hmm. since the new 52. So it's not something that's far fetched. And it's not as if Batman doesn't know how to deal with supernatural stuff, even if he's not the best person to go to for it. So I don't mind it. I, to me, it's just, it's, it's, to me, I don't, I look at this and the only thing I get out of this story is the, the comments that Superman makes to Batman about the death of Damien, which is pretty much left unsaid, which reminded me of death in the family back in, the, the 1980s when that whole situation between Clark and, and Batman happened back then. So that was the biggest thing that I got out of it. Everything else was just kind of throwaway to me. But, but Batman's think, not punching him, though, and, and Joker's not the Iranian ambassador this time. Yeah. I think they are. I That's a really good point, Dustin, just about the, uh, the, the Justice League Dark, especially since we've got, you know, Frankenstein uh, from Shade coming in. We are sort of getting these darker elements that are popping in. So perhaps there is a connection that's being made. So maybe the entire Batman universe is about to make a dark turn. Maybe. <laughs> As opposed to before. <laughs> the darker than well, new uh, Let's say dark, magical, supernatural Darker turn. than black. All right. So Batman number 19, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. I'll give this a four out of five batterings. I, I enjoyed this. Uh, to me, this is sort of a return to like like the Scott Snyder that I am accustomed to. I give it three out of five. The backup, 2.5 out of five. So Batman number 19 gets a total of three out of five veterans. Let's move into our next book, Batman and Robin number 19. This is the story you heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. And I will correct uh, the main man, Mr. Dustin, a little bit and call it Batman and Red Robin, number 19, even though Red Robin's in it for like 10 minutes. Well, 10% of the book. Denial. Writer Peter J. Tomasi, penciler Patrick Gleason, inker Mick Gray, and colorist John Kalitz. The issue opens with a short-haired girl with glasses eating pizza in a car and reciting Shakespeare lines from Cymbeline. Uh, and this is a play based on legends concerning the early Celtic-British king Cunobelinus. Uh, and, you know, although listed as a tragedy in the first folio, modern critics often classify this as a romance. And like Othello in the Winter's Tale, it actually deals with some themes of innocence and jealousy. So there's a little... <laughs> <laughs> you know 
manager fool you just you just burned yourself son okay i, I do love it <laughs> next to her i car rolls up and a dude comments that he loves redheads and wants to share her pizza i'm sure that was some sort of euphemism she shows the end or she throws the entire box of pizza at him and drives off how wasteful uh this girl sporting a gotham community college sweat jacket knocks on the Wayne Manor door looking for Damien and weaving a set of DVDs entitled Playhouse 90 Kinoscope uh, and a Kinoscope is a recording of a television show in case you didn't know that along with a bill for $1,000 so if I could I'd like to correct an error that I made I think it was red wait Batman and Robin maybe 18 of the note that we saw CK at the bottom uh there were a bunch of book titles and movie titles and things like that. Uh, so CK, I thought, was Clark Kent, mm-hmm. but uh, it is clear now that it is not, though. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't have known that at the time. Uh, later, Alfred is driving Bruce to the girl's house, explaining in the present tense, mind you, that he wants to know who is in Damien's life. He knocks on the door, and the girl answers in a classic Robin costume. Bruce gives her back the DVDs and a check. The girl demands to know what has happened to Damien. <clears throat> Elsewhere, and later on, Shade Agent Frankenstein is slicing and dicing when Batman comes along in his Batplane, shoots him with one of those newfangled foaming pellets, and uh, tethers him to his plane. Alfred calls because he has not heard from him in six days, so that's just neglectful, and wonders why he is near the Arctic Circle. Batman cuts him off. Great relationship there. And Alfred calls Tim Drake right away. At a creepy lab inside Castle Frankenstein, is there any type of other lab? Batman has some dead bodies in Frankenstein all set to go to resurrect his son. He plans on isolating the life force that animates Frank, as I shall call him, and perhaps reverse engineered and resurrect one of the cadavers he stole. Frank explains that his mission is to protect humanity and Batman is going against science and nature and what he is doing is unholy. Frank breaks out of the containment he is held in and begins fighting Batman. Batman plays the part of a father having lost a son, and Frank commiserates with him since he also lost a son, once by his hand and then lost again at the hand of the mother. But Batman doesn't think that they're equal in any way, uh, says they both failed their son, and then electrocutes him. We next see Batman pulling Frank apart. Great. Uh, And uh, Tim is making his way to the castle. Tim tries to talk sense to Batman, but who really can? While also bringing up the fact uh, that Batman's secret in the cave put the family at risk. So, yes, let's guilt trip him while you're trying to talk him off the building. Well, but this doesn't work, obviously. He shouts at him to leave, saying that Batman and Superman were both dead, so there is a way to bring Damien back. Tim goes after Batman, the head of Frank tells Batman to let the boy rest in peace. Then Tim orders her his plane to fire, and it destroys the science tech within the castle. Tim hopes Batman understands, <laughs> but Batman gives a stink eye times a thousand and grapples away. Frank needs some help, obviously, again, put back together because his hand is probably not connected to his body. Meanwhile, the redhead girl uh, <laughs> talks about Damien to her roommate as they play a video game. She says that Damien was a natural, and she hopes he comes back. I should make it clear that she is a hopeful director in training. Uh, she asks for a ride to the bank, and we end on an image of a $10,000 check made out to Carrie Kelly. And the check number, I would like to say, is 1986, which is the same year... At, Oh, of my geez. birth, so I think Tamazi probably was thinking of that all along. No, it was actually <laughs> it was, 
<laughs> it was also the date that Dark Knight uh, Returns came out. So that was good if you caught that little detail or if you did not. So I think the main thing to talk about, that, well, actually, I think there are perhaps many main things to talk about. But let's let's dive into the one that we all know we were going to talk about. This introduction of Carrie Kelly in the new 52. So what are your thoughts on this character? What are your thoughts on her placement here in this comic? I think that it, it worked well, though I'm completely lost because I have no idea what these DVDs are, what he is or was doing, um, what she was training him for, the fact that she's a college student and he was a 10-year-old boy. He's kind of weird yeah. too. So yeah, they get together. I, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, it's not explained of what he was doing. I don't know if he was he was an actor, or an aspiring actor. <laughs> I have no, I have no idea what he was trying to do. I mean, we did see in that in the maybe he he was he did special effects or something because we saw in uh, that Batman and Robin annual back in January we saw him setting up the camera and doing the different scenes using the camera. Maybe that's a throw to that. But still, it doesn't explain why a 10-year-old boy would be linking up with at least an 18-year-old girl um, who's in college. So that, to me, didn't make a lot of sense. But nonetheless, I think it worked well. I think the the conveniently of her being in the in the Robin, the classic Robin costume, I think it was just amusing. I don't have anything against it. I think it was... I mean, it was, a, it was a costume party, and she's in college, so why not? I mean, I'm sure it didn't make Bruce Wayne happy, but, you know, at this point, who cares about Bruce Wayne? It seems like nobody does. So, <laughs> yeah, who cares? <laughs> so, I mean, th- that's my thoughts on Carrie Kelly. I've got lots of other thoughts about this book, but I, that's what I've forgotten mm-hmm. about Carrie Kelly. The first thing I noticed is that, like, uh, this, I think this is the first issue of... of uh, Batman and Robin, Red Robin, whatever you want to call it. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that shows explicit daytime. Uh, in, in the first image we see is a very derpy looking Carrie, like, you know, reciting Shakespeare, which I, I still out of me. I, I am a Shakespeare fan, actually, so <laughs> I just threw her under the bus for no reason. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I, I kind of like it because Carrie isn't, she's, I like the fact that she's still not conventionally attractive. This is a really well the character because it has a bit of realism. And honestly, she's different than the one from Dark Knight Returns, but this is a good kind of different because she's still more of a believable, realistic kind of character in this Batman universe than most of the other ones are. I mean, she probably, I'm sure that'll be destroyed later on, but, um, she, she actually, she actually, the image of her and, uh, the image of her opening the door saying, is the music too loud? Actually really reminds me of a classmate of mine from my uh, introduction to women's studies class. So. <laughs> Hello, Caitlin, if you're listening to this. I know you're not. Um, <laughs> but, um, honestly, I liked her appearance in this. I was a little taken aback and disappointed at how little it happened. But then again, it's what's supposed to be Batman and Red Robin, which, oh, it's more than simple that. But, uh, from what we got in here, I, I enjoyed it. I thought that she was different in a good way. I thought that, uh, she was not written to be annoying, which I feared. Mm-hmm. And I thought that making her older, you know, making her an aspiring director was all, they were, this is sort of the sort of like, you know, change to, you know, things that we know about, which I welcome because it's inoffensive. It's almost logical and it adds interesting aspects to the character. So I liked her appearance in this and I look forward to seeing her again. Uh, definitely agree. Um, 
with yeah, with a lot of things that you guys are saying. I think that like I was saying at the beginning, I I I like the fact that Tamazi is taking a character that was introduced before, but he's really sort of molding her to how he wants her to be. And I think that she's I mean, we have I think some cliche characters that are coming up in some Batman titles. Uh frankly, all I can think about right now is Batgirl. But <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that she is you know, some people don't really like Harper, right? And I think that she's touch and go for me. It depends on what the issue is. But I was pretty taken with Carrie Kelly right away. I think that she could be a, a pretty cool chick. Um, I do also question how did she even get in contact with Robin? What exactly was he doing? Because at first I thought, oh, is it about the video game? Because remember, he wanted to play video games with uh, with Nightwing. That was going to be a bonding exercise. And Steph was always really trying to get him uh, to be a kid because that, you know, is what he was. But perhaps it had something to do with acting. But again, I mean, how did they uh, make each other's acquaintance? That'd be good to know. I think it'd be great if through learning about Carrie Kelly, we learn how did she know Damien and actually see Damien through her eyes. And perhaps this Carrie Kelly is sort of the form of Steph that we don't have right now because I think Steph was always that person to really ground him and teach him just to be a kid. So if Carrie Kelly is that person that we've got now, I think um, evermore can we perhaps like that character. Uh, I think it's really interesting that we're introducing her here in Batman and Robin and not elsewhere. I guess perhaps it's too stacked in Batman and then now Detective Comics. It's got all of these different stories. But this book is really focused on that grief that Batman is feeling because he lost his son. And now we're introducing this new character that knew his son. And so through her, hopefully he can learn a little bit more about her. So I think this could be a good avenue. I have high hopes for her um, and for this story. So I guess we'll see. Uh, let's see uh-huh. here. My next law, my next question is, oh, the strained relationships that we see. Uh, Batman and Alfred, and we already saw sort of the beginning of this, that he was really upset that Alfred let him out, let Damien out, and perhaps he blames him a little bit. And then you've got Batman uh, with Tim. And so I'm wondering, uh, well, we can talk about those strained relationships, but is this series of stories, uh, this current run that we've got, a way to really separate Batman from the rest of the cast and make way for a new sidekick. So are you really going to just pull him out from everyone else, which really has started already and now it's continuing and perhaps getting worse? Uh, and then if he's separated from everyone else, is there going to be someone that he gets close to and that'll be the new sort of love and person that he he gives everyone to or everything to? So, the I, you know, I forgot to bring this up earlier when we were talking Detective Comics but uh, the the whole thing where they have the bit about oh everybody doesn't want to talk to Batman because uh, of death of the, death of the mm-hmm. family, and uh, I I just want to say this briefly about Detective Comics, the situation with Batgirl where she says oh uh, shut up I know what I'm doing, that had nothing to do with death of the family because didn't she say the exact same thing that Bruce before death of the family number one number two. He asks Nightwing for help, and Nightwing takes off for Chicago. <laughs> what a gr- what, what a great hero Nightwing is! I gotta say. <laughs> so, I mean, those were the only two that they really focused on because I'm sure everybody else was tied up in the other interesting bits. Considering Jason Todd was lying on a in a bed last month, and Red Hood and the Outlaws being mended by 
Batman, Bruce Wayne, and uh, and Alfred. But nonetheless, getting to this book with Red Robin, one, I find it, again, what is the deal with the Batman universe and Red Robin? I mean, <laughs> again, slap Red Robin on the cover of this book, saying that he's going to be in the book, and then he's in, like, the smallest fraction that he could possibly be in. Carrie Kelly had more pages than, than Red Robin and more panels. So, I mean, to me, it just... And that's not to say it's a bad thing. I, I didn't, it's not that I despise Carrie Kelly because she had more pages. It's just, it seems like a cons- consistent reoccurrence where we see Red Robin, you know, said to be in a book. And then he has the, the book that reminds me of this the most is I believe it was Batman the Dark Knight during Court of oh, Owls where he had one panel on one page that he appeared in and it was supposed to be his Red, it was supposed to be Red Robin's Night of the Owls story and it had nothing to do with Red Robin. But this, uh, I mean, okay, so Tim is in it. The, the other interesting bit about this was that, uh, back when we talked on episode 112, which was just about a month ago, we read some, th- we read through some listener Q and A's and Rob said that he thought that all of these books were going to be about the five stages of grief. And he specifically stated first stage was denial. Well, what do you know? The, the title of the story was denial. So I guess, uh, Rob was onto something with that. The, the, the whole bit with Tim Drake, you know, basically saying, oh, well, you lied to us, carrying on the death of the family. I really just want Zero Year to start and everyone to start telling their own stories and not have to deal with this, you know, this inter, intertwining crap with the death of the family because the, 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 the sooner we can forget death of the family, the better. Mm-hmm. I don't remember which book it was. I can't remember if it was Detective Comics or Batman and Robin, but there was an editor's note by Mike Martz that said, oh, this happened in the unforgettable death of the family. <laughs> the sooner I can forget it, the better. Unforgettable. That's, that's all I've got to say about that. I think that Batman and Robin is going to be the one book that's going to continue to dive into the fact and dwell on the events of death of the family. And I think it's just, a, it's just kind of happenstance that you know, it needs to do it because even though all of these other allies are going to somehow team with Batman during the next five months, you know, even though death of the family happened, even though there's no reason for the, any of them to work with him, they're all going to respond to Alfred's calls for help and they're all going to go and help. And to me, it's just, that's great. But <laughs> I, I, I just feel as if, I don't know. I, I kind of feel indifferent to the whole idea of let's focus on this fact that let's 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 continue on this idea that that death of the family really broke the family up. But at the same time, each month we're going to deal with another one of these people that Batman has drove away, mm-hmm. coming and and you know dealing helping him deal with some aspect of his grief. And I think it's it's almost making it worse because I think people aren't doing it for him. Uh, they're, they're doing it to, because Alfred is asking them. And, and I think this is just an example of perhaps what the trend is going to be that they come and they're trying to stop him. And basically it makes it worse because I think the relationship between Tim and Batman now is worse than what it was before, uh, this issue began. Yes. Um, I think that number one, talking about like Tim, Tim Zerk's appearance here. Yeah. I'm not, I'm with Justin. I don't know what it is with the uh, DC and Tim Drake because I don't care what happens in, in, in Teen Titans number zero. You know, ideally Tim and Batman should have some sort of relationship, whether it's like the father and son relationship they had 
you know, Puny 52 where, you know, they thought Devin was dead and he looked for him and, you know, they had that hug in Red Robin. Or if it's, you know, just as partners. I kind of wanted more from this than, you know, Tim wondering, oh, I wonder why he's, he's acting all, all crazy. And, like, Alfred's like, you know, you probably should know since you were there watching Damien die. And that was very disappointed. Uh, that's very disappointing. Although I will say that, like, I did enjoy the scene where Tim was forced to destroy Batman's science. Because, uh, to me, a lot of this reminded me of Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul, which, if you don't know, the same thing happened when, uh, Tim Drake was confronted with the possibility of resurrecting, uh, his dad and Superboy with the, uh, Lazarus Pits and Nightwing had to stop him. And Tim was going through the same thing. Cause I, cause I read into this and it could be reading into this exactly that, uh, Tim was, seeing a lot of himself in Batman and trying to keep him from doing that. It's not explicitly referred to or stated, but I found a lot of that in this in the scene, so I did enjoy it for that reason, which is why when Batman gives Tim the, the stink eye and Tim kind of looks, you know, cool, like looking down shamedly, I kind of wow. like that. But at the same time, I, I wanted this to be more of Tim wanting to reach out to Batman rather than Tim begrudgingly trying to ha- stop Batman from doing something crazy. And that being their, their team up for the issue. I felt that was annoying. And I felt that like, I'm not sure why they wanted to distance himself from Batman in general. You know, again, I'll go back to, you know, if anybody needs distance from Batman, it's Nightwing, which he's going to get, but never mind. Um, is this going to be used to, uh, distance the, the Bat family from Batman as opposed to bring them together? Possibly because I know DC really loves that idea and it's a stupid idea. They shouldn't love it. But, um, honestly, it doesn't make sense because when you're going through a tragedy, even if you want to, like, you know, be by yourself, the people who love you are going to try to reach out to you and try to help you. So I think that, like, if that's what they're going for, and that's what Tomas is going to be writing, maybe it works for this first stage, but by the end of this storyline, they should really be all back to, all back to, you know, status quo, ideally. Oh, my final question is, what do we learn, and do you find it okay learning more about Damien post-mortem? So it's as if he's still a character in this book, uh, but we're learning about him through people and through different events. How do you like this sort of uh, tactic here? And do you think this will continue? I think that in this specific title, it's fine. The reference that we saw in Batman, where Batman's you know watching the cowl archives of him and Damien working supposedly only six days ago, um, I think that to me... That seems a seems like it's not it really shouldn't be there. But references to Damien in Batman and Robin, and references to Damien uh, post mortem as far as you know learning more about Damien through Carrie Kelly, I'm okay with that. Or other characters, I'm I'm fine with that. I think it's it's justified in this title. I think that the other books, if they continue to have references to Damien, other than just words. It's really, they're just trying to basically say, hey, Damien's in a book, and I don't like that. Um, but this makes sense because the, the, this is that title. It's supposed to be Batman and Robin, and even though it's going to be changing names for the next five months, um, it still is Batman and Robin. So I think it's qu- completely okay for them to focus on it. And I also find it interesting how even though Damien is mentioned throughout this, this, this story, they never once show him once, but Batman, who, if we remember correctly, barely was, you know, di- barely referenced the death of Damien in Batman number 18, somehow has to, you know, have this, uh, 
this image of Damien show up in this title. So to me, it just, I don't know what the necessity is to do it in Batman, but Batman Robin, it makes perfect sense. Well, it's better to tell, or tell, it's better to show than tell. And, uh, if Batman goes through all these things and, you know, and they're not explicitly referencing, referencing Damien, or they're not shoving an image of Damien's vis- visage in the reader's eye, that I think it's better. And, um, I thought the thing actually in Batman where he, he kind of stood, it was like dying of the day. He was like in the, in the sort of like, you know, VR thing in his cow watching Damien from the past. That was a bit weird. Um, in fact, I, I mean, I'm not sure if this is actually going to be a talking point, but I thought that like the whole Frankenstein thing was kind of weird. I'm of two minds about that. But, uh, I mean, this is the type, this is the, the idyllic kind of book to address Damien's death. Cause I don't think any other writer wants to do it. They want to tell their own story. So, um, Whatever works best for the characters, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frankenstein isn't a talking point. If if you wanted to go, I frankly I tried to. Uh, <laughs> pardon the pun. I tried to um, <laughs> ignore what went on because I thought it was so weird, uh, and it just seemed really out of character. I mean, why go to all of this when you could probably find a Lazarus pit somewhere? Because yeah, there's no um, negative re- repercussions from that. <laughs> Well, there's not, but in this desperate mind state, I feel like he would do it. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say, you know, when I was reading through this, the first thing that came to my mind was, so he's willing to bring him back and resurrect him like Frankenstein, but he doesn't even consider the Lazarus Pit. And yes, we know that there's repercussions from mm-hmm. the Lazarus Pit, but as we've seen with Jason Todd, that can be fixed. So How's that fixed? I... Well, I mean, he went through that training, and he's not crazy like he was when he first got out of the pit. That was the whole point. There was that miniseries, Red Hood, uh, The Lost Days, where they talk oh. about how he gets out of the pit. And, you know, if you know, as as crazy as that, that series was and as weird as it was and the fact that Jason had sex with Talia, yeah. uh, that was all pretty crazy. But at the same point, it kind of set in stone this idea of Jason doing the Lazarus pit and not having to deal with the whole Superboy prime punch. So to me that there was something good that came out of that, that uh, mini series, but nonetheless, he went through the training that he did with uh, specifically the all cast that we've seen in Red Hood and the outlaws. And that training allowed him to become, I guess, as normal as Jason Todd could be. And he wasn't that crazy person. It was scurrying around the walls of Talia's mansion back in Red Hood and the Lost Days. So to me, obviously there's ways around it because Jason Todd is not some crazy creature who pops out who popped out of the Lazarus pit as we've seen the last couple months. He has no problem working with with Batman. So to me that makes sense that it would be a possibility. For him to say let's bring him back like Frankenstein that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, yeah, it's a great crossover, or well, not even a crossover, but a great cameo appearance or a guest appearance by uh, Frankenstein, which I'm sure if, if Joe was here, he, he'd like that because he, I know that he reads that book and he enjoys that book. But I have, to, I just, to me, it seems like of all the different possibilities in the DC Universe, the one that you come up with is to bring him back from the dead by using Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And pulling the that poor guy apart. Seems, that's I mean, sad. Uh, I'm of two minds to this personally because at first I was like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> but 
Batman did just lose his 10-year-old son. His 10-year-old son was murdered, and granted, he was, he was, in his, he was not in the right mind when Jason died. This is a bit different because Damien was such a wild card. You know, he kind of went off his own. Batman was, they were partners at the time. It was a bit more complicated, I think. And considering the circumstances, and, you know, if you have the ability to bring somebody back, and considering the fact, the life that Damien had, I can actually buy Batman's bereavement leading him to this choice because he's not in his right mind. So it's a bit weird, but to say it's out of character, I can understand that reasoning. At the same time, this is a, a very emotionally distraught Batman. And I think that because of the situations, people will do out of character things. And that actually, uh, kind of keeps them, that kind of keeps them, you know, being like, you know, unpredictable when, when certain, tra- uh, tra- traumatic disasters occur. Um, the Lazarus pits, you know, they're not the Dragon Balls. They don't, they don't really aren't supposed to bring people <laughs> back to life. Yeah, I did it. I don't it. know what that means. They don't, they don't, they're not like, you know, bring somebody back to life wish cards. And I know that they're used like that a lot in comics because writers don't know better, but I don't like it when the Lazarus pits are just, you know, oh, just bring them back to life that way because ideally that's not supposed to happen. And even when it does happen, it's not supposed to be this, this whole free, oh, nothing, you know, let's just do that and, and all our problems will be solved thing. Plus, I'm not, I think in the status quo currently, there's not, I don't think there's any status Lazarus Pits left, or if there is, there aren't that many, so, I don't see, it, I don't, I don't see that being like the big crippling plot point that everyone's forgetting in the comic book, so, uh, that's sort of my take on that. I mean, again, I'm mixed, I, I kinda, I see Batman's, uh, craziness, uh, being justified in this issue. It's a bit off-putting, but I understand it. I do have to say, people, that I was, accused there's the coughing of nerd and he, and Donovan just mentioned Dragon Ball Z so I hope you're on my side that he is a character assassinator. Alright, Batman Robin number 19, I'm going to give a total of 4 out of 5 batteries. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I was again, I, I was kind of confused as how I felt about this but ultimately I think I liked more than I disliked so I'll give 4 out of 5 batteries as well. I, you know, I think it had its plus moments and everything, but I think there was a lot of stuff that was weird that was sort of going on, and it's lost a bit of its um, emotional, heart-wrenching nature. Uh, I think it, it doesn't need to be emo, but I think it still needs to sort of go there, and it went a little off the tracks for me with Frankenstein, and, and just Tim felt very forcefully placed in there. So 3.5 out of 5, hopefully it gets back to where it's supposed to be. All right, Batman Robin number 19 gets a total of four out of five batarangs. Let's move into our last book, Batgirl number 19. Oh, man. Life stuff. Call an ambulance. Dad. Barbara. Uh. Uh. Oh, my God, no. Batgirl number 19, Blade from the Shadows, written by... A triumphant return of Gail Simone, illustrated by Daniel Simpieri. We begin this issue in a flashback of, uh, a black and white flashback, as it were, so it takes place in the 50s, where, uh, little Barbara Gordon and her brother James Jr. are watching you know, an old movie called Blade from the Darkness. And, um, Barbara used to have these, uh, Barbara is narrating this entire time saying these things like, uh, uh, I, I didn't have any friends. And, um, I was quiet and studious, uh, but James, James would go dates without saying a word. And, um, and then we see, uh, little Barbara saying, it's okay, James. Cause he's, he's like, you know, kind of face palming. It's only a movie. But, uh, the little boy, James Jr. says, I'm, I'm not looking away because of the blood. It's because this killer is so sloppy. So, um, 
<laughs> that is that is that. Uh, two hours ago, which I guess is the future. This is in color. Uh, we see uh, Alicia, uh, Barbara's old roommate, looking at the same. <laughs> it begins already. Um, looking at the same movie, um, uh, petting their cat. I, I think it's Alaska with her Shazam T-shirt and uh, polka dot pants. So the door knocks. She bra- grabs a bat, and we see Barbara saying, "Hey, can I come back home?" Um, <laughs> Uh, Alicia says, Oh no, you can't do this to me. You know, you left those guys in there and you left and you know, you didn't explain why and I missed you. So they hug. Um, Barbara says, Rumi, I have some things to tell you. You know, I was, uh, shot and paralyzed for a while and I think this is the third time I'm telling you that. And, um, we see that <laughs> her tell about the Joker and how the Joker came back and, um, oh, by the way, that man that you were dating, uh, he's my brother who's, uh, suspected of a dozen homicides and he was also in Arkham Asylum, but we, we don't worry about that. And um, the cat he gave us was, you know, a callback to the cat we used to have. Uh, so what do you think about all that? Barbara, I'm transgendered. I love you. So that's the end of that scene. Um, Barbara gets a call, and Alicia tells her to go. So Barbara suits up as Batgirl, saying, yes, I told her everything, except for me being Batgirl. That's not different than Batman at all. So she drives off in her Batgirl cycle. As we see uh, at the Gotham City Police Department, uh, Commissioner Gordon getting the same call from, from uh, James Jr., Things are coming to a head, Dad, and I want you be, to be there to witness it. Uh, we know how awesome he is because there's the word die written right behind him, so he means business. And um, he says they can, they are going to meet at the old aquarium, and we all know who that is. And he also means, oh, yeah, by the way, Dad, some cops were spotted spot me, so, you know, since I'm James Jr., I, I took them out easily. Um, later, uh, it's storming in rain and thunder, and we see the old Gotham uh, aquarium near the docks. We see Barbara Sr. without an umbrella, you know, looking around and reminiscing. <laughs> James Jr. Uh, saying, What's a ride again, Mommy? I want to ride again. And we turn around and we see James Jr. <laughs> looking in the shade saying, You're looking well. How's the finger? So he taunts her. Um, we see Batgirl uh, jump down, uh, you know, at, just as lightning strikes. So she's awesome. And... Uh, Mother, son, and daughter all around there. James points a gun at mother and daughter. And she says, that's rather sloppy of you. He says, I like that you finally started to think like an involved person back, girl. I do. i sure I could find something memorable to do with the remains. Hey, guess what, mommy? Batgirl is Barbara Gordon. Um, oh, by the way, did you think I was going to forgive you for bringing me to this old aquarium? Did you think I was going to fall through these of food and candy apples and popcorn and good stuff? And um, uh, Barbara Senior says, actually, she told me that she's Batgirl. Which is why I won't let you hurt my daughter again. And she pulls a gun out of nowhere and shoots him. Um, so James instantaneously disappears. And, um, and, uh, Barbara Sr. is horrified. So Batgirl turns to us, okay, where'd he go? And then he, you know, teleports behind her and slaps her in the back of the head with a mallet, cracking her skull plate. So, uh, that's the scene double. She's concussed. And, um, somehow, God's sakes. Somehow, uh, she does something and James, uh, Jr. drops the mallet. Uh, then Batgirl starts to wail on this man by punching him and kicking him and, uh, says, you know what, James, from this point on, I'm an only child as lightning strikes behind her. So she, uh, delivers her Sunday punch. Uh, James, you know, triumphantly puts his shades back on saying, you will never be free of me, uh, doing his best Captain Kirk impression. Uh, so Barbara Sr. says, James, you've hated us your entire life for all time. Why don't you know, mother? Could you possibly be that blind? It's because of her, you stupid koala. Your daughter, Barbara Gordon. Perfect Barbara. Brilliant Barbara. Reciting entire Shakespearean sonnets from her perfect little memory. 
like a perfect little dog begging for attention. Ballerina Barbara, daddy's little girl, and mommy's perfect little angel. As we see flashbacks of Barbara having lots of friends, apparently, and a teddy bear balloon as her, you know, birthday celebrated and uh, James watches from the shadows. So, um, Batgirl says, mom, get back. Uh, but James Jr. has her mother at knife point. Babs takes out, uh, at this point she said she has two batterings left, a concussive and a razor. I assume it's a razor because, uh, as, <laughs> as a callback to, uh, the Black Mirror, she throws one in his head. It looks like in his eye, but Sal keeps on telling him wrong, so I don't know. Uh, he flies back, snapping his spine, uh, against the rails oh. of the docks as he falls through the rocks below and the lightning strikes again. Barbara tries to convince the readers that she tried to save him. And bl- literal blood is on her hands. Where'd that come from? Uh, Barbara Sr. silently screams towards her son, who's shown the rocks below, and then I guess he uh, floats away. Barbara says, Mom, I'm sorry. But then, zounds! Commissioner Gordon shows up. Get your hands off of her. You're under arrest for murder of my son. You know, taking James Jr.'s Captain Kirk impression. Uh, Batgirl somehow <laughs> escapes. Even though she has a concussion, she flies away as, as Gordon vainly shoots after her, and she says, Tonight, I became an only child, and I may have made myself an orphan as well. And that is the end of back. Okay, stand up. Everyone, if you're listening to this, Joe, if you're listening to this, Dustin, Stella, listeners, stand up and go to the nearest reflective image. If you're driving, look into your rearview mirror after you park and look at yourself. Take a look into your eyes and look at yourself. And what do you see? You're looking back at you. Is that somebody who's willing to read uh, intelligent literature? Is that somebody who knows their taste, <laughs> knows what they like, knows what they don't like? Is that somebody who can think for themselves and honestly make an opinion about what's put out there in front of them for entertainment? Just decide that for me and come back and we'll wait for you uh, with open, open arms. There is a lot of things to talk about in this story, uh, which is why we're going to be here forever. And um, there's a lot of things that I want to talk about. And um, personally, uh, there's a lot of things not right about this story. Uh, I'm not going to miss words. This is probably the, the crappiest thing I've ever read, read in my life. Um, but uh, there's so many things wrong with it. I'm only going to list four of them. Uh, well, maybe not four of them. Because the first thing we have to talk about that is making headlines, I have hesitation getting into this because I'm afraid of where it's going to go, personally. But we got to get it out of the way because, honestly, there's a lot more things to talk about besides this. But uh, first and foremost, because that's at the beginning of the story, uh, Alicia reveals to Barbara that she is actually transgender. And um, what do you basically, what do you guys think about that? What is your thoughts on the scene? And, you know, what is your thoughts on it for the future? Okay, so here's the thing. I, I don't care. I mean, I just don't care. To me, she's transgendered. I mean, that's great. I mean, it's great that, you know, there's a character who is now in the DC universe who is transgendered. That, and that's, that's fine. I don't have anything against that. But quite honestly, it just seems as if Barbara just basically pours every secret she possibly has except for being backrolled to this, this girl. And her response is, I'm transgendered. And that's the end of it. We don't know hardly anything about this character, but I guess her entire basis of her character is based on nothing but the fact that she's transgendered. I, I, I mean, <sighs> this is a very touchy subject because it's something that, you know, I have 
not a lot of experience with, and it's not something that I really sh- should be the spokesperson or speaking of because I don't know a lot about it. But I'm just going to say that to me, it felt as if, well, all those fans that followed Gail Simone through Secret Six and were expecting her to do some, you know, crazy stuff like, uh, and I say crazy, I don't mean crazy, so apologies for saying that, but the, you know, the, the, the sexual stuff that she had in Secret Six where people were lesbian, people were gay, people were um, bisexual. Bisexual. Mm-hmm. There was all this stuff that was happening in Secret Six, and all those people really looked to Gail Simone as their, I guess, their comic writer, uh, preacher to get their, to get those, to get those characters in the comic books. And they watched and waited and waited and waited for something to happen. Uh, when Gail Simone came around the New 52 and nothing happened and nothing happened. Oh wait, Gail Simone got fired off the book. The first book that she comes back on, or the first issue she comes back on, she throws it in there. Um, like I said, I, I, to me, it doesn't make a difference. I know it was a big headline. I know Don texted Max's me as soon as he read the issue and told me about it. And I was just like, really? Okay. <laughs> To me, I just, it doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there who, you know, find it to be a really great thing that this is a character who is in mainstream comics and it's getting out there and can get more people informed about that. But quite honestly, to me, it doesn't make a difference to me whether she, if she was transgendered or not. I, I just don't care. Yeah. This. You know, the word that can summarize this entire issue and my feelings is contrived. Um, and, and I think I'll probably keep coming back to this depending on what Donovan's points are. But each little moment, it just felt very contrived, like all of these sort of things that seem to be very plotted out. Um, so one thing that Dustin said, you know, is, is this what her whole character is based on? And I think if you're going to pull a card like this, you should have had something in the beginning or stuff leading up to it that shows like, cause obviously being a transgender person is probably not the easiest thing in the world. I'm, I'm just guessing, obviously don't insult anyone here, but I feel like this could be a difficult, a difficult thing to go through. And she seems all you know, bubbly. She wants to be a chef. She's got clubbing kind of job, but that doesn't really inform us on what her life has been like. Whereas in Batman, we've seen the struggles that Harper's uh, brother has been going through and what Harper herself has gone through to, to help her brother, which I certainly applaud. So this really has come out of left field. In my opinion, this felt like Gil Simone has a little checklist, okay? <laughs> got the L down for LGBT, okay, got the G, got the B. I'm still waiting for the T to come out, and bam, she's got, she, now she's got the transgender. And, I mean, it's, you know, you guys, I, I don't want anyone, this is the tough thing, is like, you don't want people to take offense to what you're going to say, and, and I hope if you've been listening, you know how much I love Kate and Maggie Sawyer, I think that that's one of my favorite couples because it's done, it's done right and it's a lesbian couple. So please don't, uh, think that I'm against this. 
But I just have to say that it just feels like, you know, I, I got to fulfill some sort of quota here and I'm going to pull this out right now. And there's just no emotion there. It's just she just puts it out there and you're like, okay. Uh, so, you know, to be honest, I would really like uh, or, or love, you know, someone from the LGBT community to write in to mm-hmm. TBU or to, to, to me, if you want to, backroll.oracle at gmail.com. And, like, you know, we can always read it anonymously um, over, you know, you don't have to give your name or anything. But I think that's that's uh, an area that we don't really hear from. And I think it would be awesome to hear what you think, not only about this, like, coming through, do you think this was contrived? Did you enjoy that, hey, we got a transgender person coming out, but did you like how she was introduced? And... And why do you love the the stuff that Gail Simone does with um, the LGBT community? I, I would really be interested in hearing that because I feel like even though I am not transgender, that if I were a transgender person reading this, that that would be like, well, I'm glad there's someone like that in the universe, but I have no emotion or, you know, like liking towards her whatsoever. So it just seemed really forced to me. And, you know, if we're going to have a character like that, uh, you know, that's going to be great, but I think you gotta, you gotta have something behind it. So, uh, that's my thoughts on that one. Yeah. And just to piggyback off Stella's remark, I would love to have someone email us at podcast at net or leave a comment in the section. And we can leave it anonymous if, if you would like us to leave it anonymous, because I'd like to hear somebody's thoughts on this specific s- situation, but also in general, uh, Gail Simone's take on the LGBT community because quite honestly um, I don't really understand why she is other than just by you know name dropping hmm. the LGBT community I don't really understand the connection because quite honestly I don't really see and I and, and I'm speaking from this from Secret Six reading Secret Six too there was a lot of weird, crazy stuff that happened in Secret Six that if I was part of that community, I think I would be offended by it and not necessarily applauding her for it. So I'd love to hear someone's responses, and I think we've asked this before, but we never got it. But I would love to hear somebody's take on this. And if you're not a part of the LGBT community and you have your thoughts about the same situation, please let us hear your comments because this is something that I think we really do need to discuss because I'm sure at some point it's going to be talked about again in mm-hmm. this book. Here's my bit. Um, when I was reading this and, you know, it's, this is really early in the comic book and I, you, know, you kind of get to that, that final panel and in that page and it says, you know, I get, I get, I get what you're trying to protect me to something I'm telling you for a while. I'm transgender Barbara. I stopped and my instant, my instant, my first thought was, who wrote this? This is Simone, wasn't it? <laughs> and, and I go back, and I for, I had forgotten that Simone was returning in this issue. I was just kind of like, I kind of jumped into this, like, uh, you know, oh, it's an issue of background. I forgot there was, you know, Fox wasn't on there anymore. But then I was reminded, and my initial thought was, you know, uh, Gail Simone, I think almost as much, if not more, than her comic book work is known for her uh, uh, sort of like, you know, being the comic book writer who represents the LGBT community uh, in trying to espouse their existence in comic books. And that's a wonderful thing. It really is, honestly. There is nothing wrong with uh, Alicia's uh, coming out in this kind of way. Uh, well, I, I say in this kind of way, just in general. I don't think there's anything, I don't think, any, I don't think either any of us on this podcast 
would disagree that there's nothing wrong with her inclusion as being transgendered. Um, and this is that's sort of the positive thing. I like the artwork with it. I like her uh, look of determination with it. And honestly, I like her crying at the end because that must have taken a lot of guts for her to do that because I have zero experience with transgender people as far as I know. I don't know uh, anybody who is transgendered, at least as far as I know. And I don't know, I certainly don't know what it's like to be transgender. So I can only imagine how difficult that must be for, even if for, you know, for a fictional character and how Simone was trying to reflect that. Uh, my problem is, um, firstly, the way it comes back, comes out is extremely unnatural to the point it's almost banal because we have Barbara telling her these very serious things like the person you were dating is a serial killer. And the Joker was after me, and I've been paralyzed by the Joker before. And her, and there's no transition. The instant thing she says is, "Okay, I get you trying to protect me." There's something I've been trying to tell you for a while on transgender. It's not but. It's not you know her saying, "Wow, okay, well let me tell you this." It kind of comes comes off. And how Stella kind of said it, you know, sort of like a checklist. It does feel as though this was the issue where it had to happen, whether no, no matter how it happened. Um, I personally think that you know I. I think Barbara Gordon would be somebody who's absolutely accepting of it. But to me, the way kind of said, the way she says the people I love call me Babs, I thought was crap. Because Barbara has no relationship with this girl whatsoever, really. They had that first issue where, you know, we had the whole Barbara Gordon, Gordon, Barbara Gordon run. They had that crazy uh, Christmas scene. And we had that scene where, you know, she said, stop her, Gordon, Barbara Gordon. She's making us muffins. And that's it. And then she left. There's really not any relationship between the two of them. You know, I had a roommate in college for three years. We were, we were friends. You know, we were roommates, but we were really good friends. And even now, even after all that's said and done, like, I think I would have a, a different reaction than, you know, the people I love, you know, call me this or that. And the point I'm trying to make is that, like, that, that, that felt really, really kind of just thrown in there. You know, I think that Simone was trying to echo an ex- existential welcoming and acceptance from for the transgender community and reading this comic book and i appreciate that but in the terms of the characters and the scene it doesn't work because i would imagine that barbara would say well wow i, I didn't think that was going to happen or wow i that must have been great for her to send me that like it's just kind of thrown away the whole sequence is done is done in five panels and i feel that uh simone trying to do one thing and not having enough uh honestly enough quality to her writing to make it work and again, I, I, if I'm not mentioned this before, it, it reminds me of uh, the ending of Secret Six, where she had Knockout and Scandal Savage and a, and a third woman who were all gay. You know, one, Knockout was presumed to be dead, so Scandal Savage and this third woman were in a relationship because she was just being in a relationship with Knockout. Knockout comes back alive, and there's this legitimate dilemma of, what do I do now? I love you, but I love this woman. How can we solve this? And that storyline in the title ends with them saying, we're going to have a polygamous, polygamous marriage and everybody in the room cheers. And I remember reading lots of, uh, posts online from the LGBT community saying, is this a game to you? Do you think this is funny? This is not how, you know, this is not how reality works. So that's my general concern with it. I, uh, I honestly really love the fact that Simone did this, but the way in that she does this, I felt was a, was kind of disingenuous and, to me, I wish it were done a bit better because this is a very serious societal thing that she's dealing with. And you want serious things in society to be done well and to believe in them. You don't want them just to happen, just to say that it happened. And on one hand, I applaud her for it. On the other hand, I condemn her for it because I, I don't think it was written as well as it needed to be. 
Okay, now to the funny stuff. Um, so this issue sucked. Uh, it sucked, it sucked mightily. And um, uh, there's going to be some, some heavy stuff in there. But the first thing I would like to talk about is the script. Uh, the script and the dialogue. And to me, I, and this, is, this could be you know, just me, but I would like to know your, the two of you's opinions on this. Were you, was there any moment in this comic where you were taken out of the, of the, of the reading by the dialogue? I mean, there were some lines like, you know, oh, mother, I thought about giving you your finger back, but I threw it, you know, behind a dumpster of a big belly restaurant, you know. Is that bad? Do I get a timeout? Because you're my mother, you know. That's how we talk. You know, and it's like, you know, Barbara says to, uh, about Alicia in her, in her monologue, please let me keep this one who was willing to go on a dark journey with me without even asking the destination. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and then at the end, you know, Gordon, you know, says, you're under arrest. For my son, or no, you're under arrest for murder of my son. People don't talk like that. So, I mean, to me, that that shows a weakness in her writing. Uh, and there was other stuff, like just gen- in general, like when Barbara is concussed and seeing double. Maybe it's because of the art, but how exactly does she like get the upper hand of James? You know, how does how why does James disappear? And this, that's that's in the dialogue. He disappears right after she he is shot like two feet away from Batgirl and Barbara Senior. Like how how does where does where does Barbara Senior go? Why couldn't she warn Batgirl when she came up behind her? Like these are transitions in the in the story to make the story move forward, but they don't make any sense in the context of the story, in the context of the art, and just in general storytelling. So I was wondering the general storytelling, the dialogue, whatever, what your thought was. How bad did this suck, or am I taking this too far? Okay, well I I have a couple more things to add to some of the stuff oh, that you gosh. just said. Uh, what convinced Batgirl to tell her mother that she's Batgirl? Why well, when did this that? even? Why did this happen? I hate off panel land. Yeah. I hate it to such a degree. Well, no, and when I, did this ever happen? <clears throat> okay, well, I'll chalk it up to it was supposed to happen in the last two issues if Gail Simone was writing them, but it didn't. So deal with it. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> well, she was going to be up in the title. Unfortunately, no, 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 no. Unfortunately, you know, the thing is that you know that we we all hate off panel land. But the thing is, I want to deal with more of the fact of why would she tell her. She has no relationship with her mother. The, everything that Gail Simone has written has basically proven that Barbara has no liking for her mother whatsoever. Her mother tries to get back on her good side. And the only, the only explanation for it is the small little link of, uh, Backroll having to save her mother. Okay. But you're telling me that the entire situation where Backroll saved her mother and it never came up at all about, oh, by the way, uh, I'm saving you because you're my mother. That never came up at any point, but now it's coming up and she somehow just knows. Then the other thing that I, that I think is, is really stupid is the fact that the, also going off of the script is towards the end, she makes the comment about, oh, well, after tonight, I might be an orphan after this. I might, I'm already an only child now, but I might be an orphan. Why? Her mother was going to kill James. She pulled a gun. She shot him. So if Barbara Jr. as if Barbara Jr. finished the job for Barbara Sr., why would Barbara Sr. be mad? Because Barbara Sr. didn't intend to kill him. She just intended to shoot him. Uh, well, I guess we have to discuss some gun control situations with Gail Simone as far as What's the, cons- what's the reason of having someone pull a gun and shoot them if they're, if they're not, if their intent is not to kill them? Because if you have a gun and you pull a gun on somebody, you better intend to shoot them. Otherwise, <laughs> what is the point of having the gun? She got the gun in the dumpster behind Big Belly Burger. Yeah, I guess so. 
That whole big belly yeah. burger, <laughs> burger can I, thing. Can I say that's a, <laughs> exactly. I'm saying like, like, yeah, I, I got it behind the dumpster at Colonoscopy Crab Shack. Big belly burger. Who the hell would name the restaurant that? Well, it's boy. okay, but it's not even just that. It's like, okay, we know that James Jr. has absolutely no emotion, so he would not have a I'll sense of that. humor. Yet, for some reason, we've gotten these stupid jokes that he's been cracking throughout Gail Simone's entire run. Um, there's another lingering thing that I'd like to bring up, but I'll wait for Don to uh, address his other points before I bring it up in case it is one of his other points. Um... <laughs> You know, all along, like for what issue is this? Nineteen. Let's subtract maybe three because the past two weren't awful, and then maybe I'll give one for some money. I mean, I've basically been complaining for sixteen issues that the dialogue has been weird, and it just feels like what is going on? This is not how Bab speaks at all, and it 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 has got it is like the worst. It's been, I don't know if it's because she was off the book and then she got on it and then she felt like I've got to really step up my game and stepping up the game really meant that it was going to take a dive. Uh, but yeah, there's some weird stuff. James at the party, that entire thing. People, if you were listening to that recap and you're like, what is he talking about? Where is he getting this stuff? That was from the actual page. And it seems so, it's so bad. Like, I don't, if, if we were watching television and this stuff was said, you would turn off the show. You would not. TV out the window. Yeah, you would not, you would not continue reading. The, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I can't get over it. Um, the fact that we didn't see her tell her. I don't know if that, what if it comes up next issue that it was a, uh, a complete, um, bluff who knows but i think that's something if you're going to reveal your identity that doesn't happen in an off panel line i think that that is something that should consistently be shown in the history of batman do we ever see him reveal his identity off panel (laughs) hell no or spider-man or any here but we do it with batgirl here that doesn't make sense i I also never known until now I also wonder if Gil Simone even read any of Guy Fox stuff since he didn't throw the finger away. Um, remember, he was using it as a stylus to tap on his PDA. So I'm wondering if maybe this is like some sort of weird mistake. Um, I don't. What is this? The dialogue? Man, we could talk about so much stuff. It's bad. It's bad. Was I ever taken out of it? Donna, then, I was never in the issue to begin with. <laughs> That's how bad it was. I was completely, it just seems. The door was closed. You know, you decided that it was too dangerous to be with your roommate, but you decide you need to come back and that yep. she's this uplifting force. Hello, your father needs to be that uplifting force for you, not this chick that you've known for a couple of days and you've not told her anything. Then all of a sudden you have like a nice little chick fest and explain everything in five minutes and then rush off. No, 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 no. It's just too convenient <laughs> how they, they brought this Elisa character back. I mean, the whole thing was, the whole reason it seemed as if this character even existed was just to have her be a way for James to taunt Barbara. Mm-hmm. That's really the only reason she ever really seemed to exist. Because she existed, and we had that whole weird, uh, okay, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm this crazy hipster, <laughs> that's who I am, at the beginning of the, the, the series. And then they didn't really deal with her up until she was walking home one day and James was like, hey, you want to ride home? 
And next thing you know, he's buying her a cat. It just, the whole exchanges between James and the girl didn't make any sense either because how could the girl assume that she could get any kind of relationship with James if James feels no emotion? Why? Yeah, for yeah, I'll get into that. But like, and I'm just going to reiterate, you know, how bad it is. How, how did he? He disappears. Oh, he's disappeared. He's a, he's, a, he's a normal man. He's not even an adult. He's like 18 or something or some crap. Like he disappeared. <laughs> like, oh my god. Uh. See, I chalked it. I chalked that up to the fact that you know she was she's concussed, so she might not have been pain, She might not have been able to see how. But the fact that he just happens to have a mallet, where did he get a giant Holy wooden mallet? No, the fact of the matter is how they... Just... I mean, is he walking around with it? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. They're at an aquarium. Why does an aquarium have a carousel? Uh, I mean, there's... Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I just don't get it. I think, well, I at least accepted the mallet that I thought maybe it came from one of those things, like the test your strength bar. Yeah, but again, that makes sense with the well, carousel. Well, is it broken down? The I mean, isn't it mild? At the aquarium. No, it's, it's, an, it's the old. It's the old aquarium. You know the old aquarium. You always go there. Yeah, the the old aquarium that they made a big chunk of time. They they spent like a page explaining that this was a great place for a tourist tourist to come to. But who in the right mind would ever come to Gotham City to visit? They spent like I believe it was at least a half a page discussing what that that aquarium was. I have never been to an aquarium that has a carousel. Yeah, can I just say that, like, uh... I don't think I've ever been to a museum, a planetarium aquarium, that has ever had a carousel. Um, That does not make any uh, sense. uh, In Chattanooga, where where I went to to school, um, like, right next to the university, there is... We actually have a very famous Chattanooga Aquarium. And, you know, in the aquarium area, there's, there's like, a park there. There's, like, Israel... It actually is on the docks. And there are things where children can enjoy, like, hot dog stays and all that stuff. They don't have a carousel. They don't have a, uh, you know, texture strength thing. It's not a car. It's not a carnival thing. It's an aquarium, like, like tourist trap. So I guess that's something they have in Gotham uh, City. the North, the North, no, the Northwest where Gail Smith. Well, you know, I'm actually not done with the scripting now, but this is, this is me ending it because I want to read off some quotes from some positive reviews of this comic book. Because oh. I, find, I find them so baffling that like I, okay. So this, this is, this is some of the quotes that I picked out from people who like this issue. Quote. A beautifully rendered issue from start to finish, from dialogue to art, and a magnificently tight plot throughout. Batgirl 19 is my book of the week and perhaps even the year. It is not unappreciated by any means. Quote, um, Simone's detour into James's head might be the issue's weakest link, but she still managed to provide three of the strongest pages in the series thus far with a powerful conclusion that elevates the Gordon family saga to Shakespearean heights. Quote, Everyone cheer because Gail Simone is back on writing duties for Batgirl. The woman who brought Oracle out of the wheelchair and put Babs Gordon back in the Batgirl suit and made Batgirl into one of DC's top Sun comics every month is back after a two-issue stint. Without actually advancing the story very far, um, Simone brings back everything that's made the series special. The dark subject matter, the intensity of Babs' character, and the creepiness of her brother James Gordon. The cliffhanger at the end just puts the story that much further over the edge, keeping readers on the edge of their seats for the next issue. All right. Um, now let's talk about, you know, cause they mentioned before, you know, James Jr.'s motivation because, oh lord, um, what can we say about this? Because, uh, James Jr. first appeared in 2011, Center Comics, blah, 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 blah. Uh, in this issue, uh, Barbara Gordon Sr. says, James, why have you always hated us? And he says, what does he say? He says, 
how could you possibly believe that mine? Are you stupid? It's completely obvious. It's because of Barbara Gordon, of course. You know, perfect Barbara, brilliant Barbara with all of her friends that she probably can't remember. You know, daddy's little girl and mommy's perfect angel. Um, you know, it, it, it goes without saying that this entire uh, explanation is preposterous, but this offends me on two different levels. Number one, <laughs> this is the most cliched, you know, uninteresting, feckless, stupid thing ever. You telling me that this guy attacked Batman and Commissioner Gordon, you know, and killed that guy and terrorized that waitress and killed that girl back in camp all throughout Scott Snyder's run and did all that crap because of Barbara Gordon? It was her fault? Secondly, this to me, and I'm sorry, I'm going first on this, but this to me, like, just, it just ushers forth the whole, you know, Batgirl, Barbara Gordon is like the most awesomest character in DC Comics ever with her eidetic memory and her perfect brilliance and she's smarter than Batman. And, you know, the fact that her being so awesome turns somebody into a serial killer and Simone through the dialogue says, you know, perfect Barbara, brilliant Barbara, you know, reciting entire Shakespearean sonnets from her perfect little memory. Like, and I know this is Junior, James Jr.'s, you know, sarcastic, uh, voice, but the fact that, like, to me, it's just more and more ushering in of how awesome Batgirl is. And I just read this and it's like, damn it, Gail Simone! No! <laughs> like, get off her d- Seriously, I'm sorry. It's like, I'm tired of, it's really hard when you're reading one title and one character's Batgirl and you gotta accept, accept the fact that another character's going to be Batgirl. It's really hard getting used to that when the character is shown to be the best character ever. And Batman says, Barbara, you were always meant to be Batgirl. And the fact that her being so awesome turn is, is, is turning James Jr. into a killer. So I thought that was like possibly one of the worst parts about this horrible, horrific issue. What did you guys think? The fact that they specifically state that the, this has all happened because Barbara was some perfect child and everyone loved Barbara and it's basically sibling jealousy that has caused all this means that if I was Scott Snyder, I would be pretty pissed at Gail Simone for doing this with the character. Now, you know, Scott Snyder's the nice guy that he is. He's probably not going to be like, oh, yeah, Gail, I really wish you would have done the character a little bit better justice than having him state that this was all because of sibling jealousy and then killing him or not killing him or whatever. Because we know, for the most part, nobody really dies. But uh, I guess Damien's one of those <laughs> few exceptions. This but anyway... Um, but the, the, the thing in my mind is it, I knew this was going to happen when, when she started using James Jr. And, oh, James Jr. is going to be the ultimate villain for Batgirl. And I knew this was going to happen because, well, what's really the, the reason of why you would need to do this if it wasn't going to be sibling jealousy? What is the reason why James Jr. needs to go after Batgirl? There was none. Uh, they never once explained how James figured out that she was Batgirl. Uh, we assumed it was because of the situation that happened in the Zero issue, but that was never fully explained. It was never fully explained in any of the issues. It was just all of a sudden he knows who she is, and he's her greatest enemy because it's her brother. To me, it's just it's poor writing. Um, there's there's no there's nothing to really debate about it, and those 
critics or reviewers out there who say that this is a masterful masterpiece and is going to be the best back roll issue mm-hmm. of the year. You know what? It might be the best back roll of the issue of the year because we've got how many more months to look forward to Gail Simone <laughs> writing? You know, it, it might only go downhill from here, but don't say that. I, <laughs> I mean, I just don't, I just, I just don't understand it. I, and I, I'll say this, you know, I'm not a huge, I'm not the Cassandra Kane fan that Don is. I'm not, the Stephanie Brown fan that that Stella could be, and I know Stella's probably more of a Barbara Gordon fan than she is Stephanie Brown, but I'm I'm not stuck on one specific character being Batgirl. So it's not about the fact that I have these feelings about things that have happened in the past continuity that have upset me. It's more about the fact that we have not, here we are, 19 issues in, we still haven't gotten any explanation of how she can walk. You know, they can choose to do that whenever they want. That's fine. But the fact that they are not addressing it, but they are saying that she was paralyzed and she just happens to walk and they address it in this issue. They sit there and say, oh, well, I got shot by the Joker and I wasn't able to walk. And that's why I had a wheelchair ramp in my van. Okay. The first question out of my mouth from if I was Elisa would not be, hey, I'm transgendered. It would be, wait, how did you get out of being able to be paralyzed? That would have been my question, not, oh my god, I'm gonna make this, this, uh, two, two comment remark based off of everything you just said by saying I'm transgendered. I mean, it's just, <sighs> as much as I, and, and the thing is, I don't wanna spend a gazillion amount of time on this because I hate when we spend 45 minutes on an issue that absolutely sucks. And, well, explain why. but it's just, but it's the nature yeah. of the beast. And like, quite honestly, I feel like sometimes, we are uh, like we are the minority of the internet when it comes to not liking what she's doing in Batgirl. And yes, I know the book sells well. I buy the book every single month, and but I at the same time I buy every single Bat book. But to me, it just I just I cannot comprehend how in the world people are reading this and saying it's so great. Like I just don't get it. There's 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 plenty of books out there that I read and I say. This is good. This is good. And this is bad. This is really bad. And I don't get it how, you know, I, I don't understand what the differential between me saying this is bad and somebody else saying that this is good. I don't see it when they're saying something else like, I'm just going to use this as an example, not as something that actually happened. But somebody says, oh, this issue of Batman was was really good. You're telling me that you're going to compare that issue of Batman to this issue of Batgirl and put it on the same level? That's, it's, it just dumbfounds me and I just, I cannot figure out how in the po- how in the world it's remotely possible. Uh, I did, I will say that I have noticed there was a point in time, not recently because I wasn't paying attention to the reviews for this issue, but there was a point in time where suddenly the Batgirl reviews started to drop and there didn't seem to be as many reviews. And I feel as if there's some sites out there and some reviewers and critics who will not review issues when it's not nearly as good as they need it to be. And I think that's to protect themselves from, you know, you know, trying to say that a creator did a bad job. Well, I'll, I'll be right here. I'm from the Batman universe. My name is Dustin Fritchell. And this is a horrible issue. And if you think this is a good issue, you know, good for you. But to me, this was crap. And I... I just, I cannot comprehend how there's people out there who think that this is good. 
Yes, it's a female. I mean, the, the and the problem is again touchy subject. It's a female creator. It has nothing to do with the fact that she's a female creator. Should she be getting support from fans because she's a female creator? Sure. Should she be being told whether she's doing a good job or not? Honestly, yes. And it doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like she's a female creator writing a female hero. And she throws in bits from the LGBT community and somehow she's this, she's this God who can't be touched. And that's, that's, well, besides being blasphemy, I think it's utter, it's, it's, it's an absolute lie. She has not been doing a good job on this book and I don't know why. And, and, and quite honestly, it, it's really sad that DC realized she wasn't doing a good job on the book, fired her. And then because of the fan outcry for her, she got put back on the book. It, that's what's really sad about it. You want a female comic book creators? Go to Fiona Avery or Louise Simonson or Rachel Dotson or Amanda Connor yeah. or Anna Senti or even Devin Grayson, to be honest, because I, I, I love Devin Grayson's, uh, Gotham Knights run, you know, no matter what she's done on Nightwing. So, <laughs> and you know, and another thing, I also went back and read some other stuff of Yale Smuts, which I happen to have, like Wonder Woman 600, you know, and like, I don't know what it is, because she, it's not like she always writes this, write, like, writes like this. You know, I've read stuff where it's fine. You know, I didn't like her second run of Birds of Prey when we reviewed it on the podcast, but like, I've read stuff by her where it's fine. It's, it's, it's good. But this is just goddamn terrible. It really is. Uh, and I'm not done, but if someone wants to go ahead, I, I have just one more point before we move on. <laughs> I mean, how can I even, uh, remember that time? fans and friends when I like friends. nearly broke down as you know just like th- th- this character being torn through the mud um you know <laughs> there's been a lot going on in my life as of recently and sometimes it affects my reading of comics like I, I sometimes have to pick good times to read them else it'll be like it'll sort of tear down a really good one but this like I think I, there was like no emotion going on at, at the time. I was just like, okay, it's time to read these comics. And I'm reading it. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this? And to be honest, like when comics are bad, I almost get stressed out. And especially Batgirl. I have a Batgirl to Oracle podcast for goodness sake. So I'm like, these comics should be good so I can review good comics on my podcast. And it stresses me out that I'm like, it's an awful comic. What am I supposed to say? Like each month I come and say these negative things and I feel bad about it, but I'm not going to lie and give it credit when there is no credit due. And, you know, for the past two months, it's been, I mean, it's not been amazing. It's not been Brian Q. Miller amazing for me, but it's almost been like a relief. Like I turned it open. I didn't even know it was Ray Fox, to be honest, in the beginning. I'm just like, wow, this is really different. This isn't too bad. And then I see it's Ray Fox. And now we're back to this. Uh, the original question was about James and his uh, motivation. motivation. So, <sighs> James is crazy. So, I, I, it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination that he could potentially blame it all on his sister. But that's if you look at this in a vacuum. And I don't think we can do that because with everything we saw with Scott Snyder's run, that was not his motivation whatsoever. And the fact that he leaves Barbara 
for Joker to kill does not follow with this train of thinking. Because if you hate someone to such an extent that, I mean, you go to all of this stuff that you're doing, you would not let somebody else kill her. And so I have a great amount of problem with that. That just doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. Uh, the fact that, I mean, look at how much, I don't know. Is he like really, really crazy now or is it just Gil Simone crazy? Because all of these opportunities that he had to kill these people, his mom, but he's visiting her and letting her go. He could have killed her with like morphine overdose or suffocated her, but no, he lets her go out. Batgirl, countless times. It just doesn't. It's like ring around the rosy. We just keep going around and around and around. Maybe it's an opportunity for Gail Simone to just bring in readers because, hey, James Jr. is here. So followers of Snyder's going to come on and, and maybe this is a way to do that. I, you did, I think you, you brought down the character for a lot of people. I mean, you, well, I guess I can't speak for everyone. You brought down James Jr. for me and it's, I, I really can't go on. I think on the, it's just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, no, not. In the beginning, I think it may have made sense because he was stalking Barbara and he was stalking her via Alicia and then you had the Alaska cat and everything. But then all of a sudden it sort of went to hell in a handbasket and we've never really gotten back to a point where it could conceivably be wrapped up in a, in a good area. Um, what are your other points? Because there are some things that I wanted to touch on. I just like little plot point. details. What it? What is it? Just in case. Um, I don't know if it'll... Or I could just wrap up the details at the end. I think that'll be fine. Oh, Commissioner Gordon versus Batgirl. Oh, gosh. Yeah, let's hit that up. Um, okay, so uh, James Jr. does, you know, a, a triple quadruple backspin into the rocks below. Uh, Batgirl and, and Barbara Sr. Um, presumably feel sad. And uh, Batgirl turns into leaving Beth because of the blood on her hands. Gordon shows up, you know, instantaneously saying... Get your hands off your girls for the murder of mine. Blah, 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 blah. Writing. Um, okay, the point is, if he thinks that Batgirl killed her, his son, then ideally he would have seen what happened. What happened? James Jr. had the mother at knife point. Batgirl tossed the batarang to disarm him. He, fl- he flumped back and he fell. What would a cop do in the same situation? He'd probably take a, take a shot and ideally he would fall back on, and fall, and, and falls. So, it's stupid that he thinks that, you know, she murdered his son. She saved her mother's life. Shut up. Second of all, if Barbara is in a situation where she's with her, uh, her nuclear family and the brother is crazy, so he's a villain and she's with her mother who knows her identity and the policeman cop father shows up and she's only with her mother right now, what's going to happen? You know, if, if he stupidly thinks that she's behind this, ideally, I think, that she would unmask and say, look, let me explain. First of all, I'm Barbara. Let me tell you what happened. Okay, she's concussed. She's not in her right mind, so she foolishly escapes. What's ideally going to happen? The mom's going to explain everything. The mother's going to explain, you know, what, what really happened and, you know, how Batgirl isn't to blame. This whole conflict is very, very fruitless. You know, it's just like, you know, this can't go farther than, than like, you know, another page at best. And it's, it's conflict for conflict's sake. And it's a marker of Gail Simone's writing to make this, you know, as far as far from an ideal Batgirl comic as I can possibly think. But what did you guys think? It doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is, one, because you already said the, the Barbara Sr. is going to tell Gordon. 
It's not like the two of them have this horrible relationship where Gordon's not going to believe her. There's no reason for him to not believe her. Gordon was called and taunted by James on numerous occasions, and then in addition to that, you know, he killed police officers left and right just to taunt his dad even further. So why in the world, I mean, yes, I understand, yes, his son just died, but I don't see Gordon being the type of person who's going to say, oh, you killed this person who's been murdering people throughout the city and I know has is a killer and I had suspicions of him being a killer when he first came back to Gotham back in <laughs> And he was in Arkham Comics. Asylum. And he was locked in Arkham Asylum. The the uh, it doesn't make any sense. And the, the the other thing that doesn't make any sense is so Barbara dives or she jumps off the uh she jumps off the pier to escape her father's wrath. And he shoots a fire, or he shoots a bullet up in the air, which doesn't make any sense. Where does she go when she jumps off the pier? It's a pier. It's the water. She doesn't have a bat. She glides, I assume. It's like Arkham City. You glide. You hold the the water and then you start over again. You start over. Oh, gosh. I'm done. That's all I've got, because I... I, Oh, in the words of Kara, Starbucks race, frack me. What is... <laughs> uh, you know, guys, one of the best filial relationships I would say in comics would be Babs and Jim Gordon. And it only got stronger once he told her, you know, I know you're back girl. And so they're able to do a lot of stuff together. Um, and he helps her out and, and vice versa and everything. And we start off issue number one. She moves out of the house and we don't really see them together at all. She comes in and says, hey, mom's back in town. She worries about his safety when you got the fire bombing going on with the, the bird of prey. What, uh, what is that? Talon, Mary. Um, anything else? Oh, they had that special moment in issue number zero where they're up top, but that's in the past, so it doesn't really technically count. But then we got kind of to a good place where she's kind of playing Oracle, and I think this is in the Ray Fox stuff, which, oh, shocking. Um, and, you know, she's giving him information. I'm like, yeah, this is kind of how it's getting back to how it's going to be. And then we've got this business. So let's just throw a wrench, another wrench, basically an atomic bomb, into the relationship. And Oh, gosh. Basically, everything that Dustin said, but this is like McKenna all over again. I just had this, like, epiphany because you've got the person there who did everything, but you're (laughs) blaming Batgirl for it. And I'm just like, what the devil is going on? Obviously, you know, yeah, he held, he has your mother at gunpoint. Um, I I, I just don't even, there are like no words. But seriously, you know that he's a psychopath and you're pointing your gun at Batgirl. Obviously, he should say something like, well, you shouldn't have killed him, but I understand why you did. I mean, I mean, that's a little forced, I guess, but. Well, but, but wait, wait, let's address that. Let's address that real quick. Do you think no. he's really dead? Yeah. I honestly hope I he is. I mean, he's going to end up, up reappearing and he's going to be in a wheelchair. And he's going to, you know, that's what's going to happen because they need to make the point about the fact that he snapped his spine. Which is another contrived thing. How could you hear through that cow and then raining, you know, and she's like far away. Oh, I I heard that noise. I I recognize it anywhere because (laughs) I recognize, you know, when I was shot. Because she must be snapping her spine. Oh, that's right. Because she was, she was snapping all those bones back in death in the family. (laughs) So she's probably pretty used to uh, the sounds the different bones make when she snaps, when they snap. 
Yeah, I don't know. That was another contrived thing. I think that was ridiculous. Let's put her him down on her level by breaking his back. No, not at all. I, I, I don't see that happening at all. If if it was that powerful a force, I could see almost him breaking through the wood and falling backwards onto that. But yeah, we're talking yeah. about a pier that you know has been abandoned yep. for how long? It's right on the seaboard. It's going to be rotted. He's not going to snap his back on it. Oh, and but the best part is he somehow snaps his back on it, but then yeah. it cracks and he falls into the water. I, I would right. just as like these sounding boards. I've got this great idea. I think we're going to paralyze James Jr. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, how did they go along with this stuff? I don't understand. Maybe I should get hired at DC because I think I could come up with something better. No, I, I think it's ridiculous. Oh, you you think got it it, it's coming around. Hey, it's, <laughs> hey, it's, uh, it's a ring composition. I know how you know that I love those things. But I don't love it here. McKenna did it once. We thought it was awful. We kind of thought through it at the back row round table and Okay, maybe it kind of works. This doesn't really work. Jim Gordon running up, got a killer. The killer is gone. Pointed at Batgirl. You did wrong, Batgirl. Bang, bang, bang. Speaking of the Batgirl roundtable, Sean, Ed, where's your messiah now? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But there is a there is a couple different things I just want to bring up quickly uh, before we wrap this up. So I do want to say that it specifically panel to panel. He gets hit in the eye, so he's most likely going to lose his eyes. So he'll have an eye patch and supposedly be in a wheelchair. But uh, one panel, we see the crack. She makes the comment about his injury to his spine. He then falls into the water with all of the wood falling around him. Next panel, we see Batgirl standing there in front of all of the wood that happened to crack too. Now, that could be an artistic thing. Or an artist issue. Quite honestly, I thought the art was okay in this issue. I didn't really have any problems with the art. I was just that. having to deal with the story. Yeah. But <clears throat> there, the, the whole thing with crack and she says injury to his spine. If anything, that would have been the wood, <laughs> not injury to I his spine. I recognize it anywhere. <laughs> because, because there's like four, three, three different pieces of wood that are cracked in the next, er, in two panels later. So it's, it's hard to believe that, uh, that happened. Um, the other real quick thing I wanted to talk about was uh, the fact that it says the ventriloquist is coming next uh, next issue. I'm partially excited about that because I'd like to see the ventriloquist, but there's two. There's a, there's a couple things I'm hesitant. One, the writer. About. One is it is it going to be Arnold Wesker? Are they going to bring him back in the new Fifty Two? Are they going to go back with uh, the second ventriloquist, or are they going to introduce a third one? The biggest problem is that knowing Gail Simone, it'll probably be a completely wow. different one. And I'm also super concerned because if she does a bad job using this character, we'll probably never see this character again. Um, the, the, the very last thing that I, I want to mention is the fact that, um, so Gail Simone is off the book for two issues. She comes back and the giant story element that she was building with all of those stupid villains that she created, led us to believe that there was going to be some, you know, war of all these these villains that she, that Batgirl was going up against, and that James Jr. was the catalyst to bring them all together. Clearly, that's not the case because now he's supposedly dead, or is he? Is he? Is he going to be dead for you know six months and then he'll come back with his team of supervillains to face off against Batgirl? <sighs> 
the longer that story goes on, the uh, the more I will dread reading this series. Um, question: Do you know how sales went up for, or or, or how how they changed between Fox and uh, Simone? Okay, so as far as sales goes, well, the the biggest issue is that uh, if you remember starting back with uh, issue number fourteen, it was part of the Death of the Family, so obviously it's going to get a boost in sales mm-hmm. from that. But Death of the Family, or Batgirl number 14 had, this is Simone, had 77,000. Batgirl number 15 had 75,000. That's also by Simone. Then we switch over to Batgirl number 16, which was Simone's last book. That was 72,000. Uh, switch over to Great, uh, switch over to Fox with uh, issue number 17, and it dips down to 65,000. And then we go to 18 and it dips down to 51,000. So it, it clearly took, uh, took a names. hit, but, but, but I don't know if that's just because it wasn't Death of the Family sure. too, because Death of the Family was, uh, pretty good. If we go back to September of 2012, which was the last time that we had, um, that was backrolled number zero, that was before the Death of the Family banner popped over the book. Um, the book under Simone only had 50,000 issues. So Death of the Family gave it that giant boost, which I'm sure will be accredited to Gail Simone, but it's, it's not because of her. It's because of the Death of the Family banner that was on the top of the book for those three months. And quite honestly, you know, 50,000, that's less than Ray Fox had last month. So to me, uh, going back to August of 2012, um, we're sitting at only 42,000, 43,000. So it, I mean, it went slightly up for zero month and then it went up for death of the family. But honestly, I mean, I just don't understand why everyone says this is such a great book. If it was back in August when it wasn't involved in a crossover and it wasn't, uh, you know, a special month, it had only 42, 43,000 issues sold. That's, that's like on par, that's not that far off from some of the other books that they've had in the past that have, you know, done crappy and they've canceled. And I'm not saying I want the book canceled, I just, I'm just saying I, I want somebody mm-hmm. else on the book. Alright, so Batgirl number 19 after that long-winded explanation. Uh, utter crap. I did like the art, so I will give it one out of five, but that is solely for the art alone. This issue was terrible. Zero out of five battle rings. Good gracious. Um, if you have to use fracking, then you can, don't have to bleep it, man. Um, oh man. <laughs> it's I'm just, sorry. It's so, I just don't understand. Like, such a great, it's not like we're given this crappy character. You've got this character that has such an awesome line of history. And she has so much potential, but it's like, uh, each week, um, or month, rather, if it were a week, I'd be dead by now. Um, one, one out of five. All right, so Batgirl number 19 gets a total of one out of five batterings. That is all of our books. Let's throw over to John with that books for beginners.
and welcome to another episode of Pat Books for Beginners. I am your host, John, and this week we are covering the Asriel issues of The Road to No Man's Land. This covers Asriel, Agent of the Bat, 47 through to 49. It was released between December 1998 and February 1999, and it's written by Dennis O'Neill and features art by Roger Robinson. For those of you who aren't up to speed on what's been going on, Gotham's been hit by a series of catastrophes. It's been hit by plague in the Contagion story arc. It's then been hit by an earthquake in Cataclysm. And a number of people are debating trying to shut Gotham down. And these series of comics cover those talking points. As far as I can tell, Road to No Man's Land doesn't appear to have been released as a trade paperback. But I could be wrong, I couldn't find one. However, the issues are available for 3 to $4 on eBay, so they're very cheap to pick up. So, will Road to No Man's Land be any good, or will it just be the road to hell? Let's find out as we delve into Asriel, Agent of the Bat, 47 through to 49. We open with Batman and Azrael taking down some looters. Batman asks Jean-Paul Valley to go to Washington to protect a senator who is trying to get money for Gotham. Azrael leaves and Oracle briefs him on the senator. Oracle tells John that he is giving a speech at a Nick Scratch concert. Azrael doesn't know who that is and Oracle exclaims next he'll be asking who Hanson is. Yeah, that well-known band, Hanson. She explains that he was an astronomer who was bathed in a blue blinding light. This caused him to grow taller and become a hit with the ladies. He then formed a rock band, got a hit TV show and started a religion. Azrael gains access to the concert and we cut to Nick Scratch saying that they will have to kill someone, implying it's the senator. Nick tells the senator that he wants him watching from the lighting wig so that he can meet someone over an arms deal. Of course, it's not an arms deal, and two of Scratch's men try to kill him until Azrael intervenes. John easily dispatches the thugs. Meanwhile, the senator confronts Nick and is persuaded to go to his dressing room to tell him what happened. Of course, in there, Nick kills. Issue 48 opens with Nick Scratch berating his assistants for failing to kill the senator. They explain that someone tried to stop them, just as Azrael appears. Nick sort of explains why he killed him, saying that he hates Gotham. He also gloats that no one will believe he killed the senator. He cries out for help and blames Azrael for the death, forcing Azrael to fight his way out. Scratch gives chase, knocking Azrael onto the stage. However, on Nick's orders, his assistants attack Nick. A confused Azrael flees the scene. And it turns out that this was all a plan by Nick, so that the media footage makes him seem like a hero. We then move to Batman appearing. He tells Azrael to hang up his cape. Azrael says he will, but first must finish one thing. Issue 49 opens with Nick Scratch explaining why Gotham must die. He says by closing Gotham's banks, it will benefit a group of money men assembled to talk to him. Meanwhile, Azrael contacts Oracle to find out where Nick will strike next. 
which will be our meeting of the Supreme Court to discuss shutting Gotham. The justices discuss shutting Gotham down, whilst at the same time Nick's Scratch appears on TV and argues that Gotham is evil. He urges the people of Gotham to leave as soon as possible. Meanwhile, Azriel arrives at the house where the justices are meeting, and enters by crashing a car through the gate. He tells them to get out, but before he can explain, he is shot. Fortunately, the armour protects him. And somehow, Jean works out that the bomb is under the table and throws it out of the window where it explodes. And the issue ends with Batman berating Asriel for guessing it was under the table and not covering his track properly. Bart says that they can work together. Overall, I thought this issue was okay. The art is very good. It's well proportioned and there are some very interesting people. And I really like the look of Nick Scratch. He had this sort of kiss, 70s glam rock kind of feel going on. But at the same time was quite reminiscent of punk rock artists from the 1970s and early 80s. However, the issue is a mess. I don't understand why Nick Scratch wants to close Gotham. It's explained that it will benefit money people, but I don't really get how. And yeah, sure, maybe they're going to have more money in their banks. But apart from that, there's not really any benefit. And it's a bit of an extreme length to go to to shut the entire of Gotham. And I don't understand why he wants the justices dead either. They were going to close Gotham, which is what he wanted. They were going to vote for it until he tried to put a bomb in there. And Azrael had to stop it. So actually, he's not a very good supervillain. He's an idiot, Basically, he's just a doesn't think anything through, apparently. Also, why does Batman change his mind and say that he can work with Azrael after he told him explicitly that he's massively messed up? Huntress often messes up and he doesn't forgive her. It seems a really forced conflict. Isn't Azrael now going to be a wanted man anyway? Because they don't clear up the fact that it wasn't Azrael who killed the senator. He can't work with the police. And if he turns up, he's just going to be arrested. People are actually going to be hunting for him. He's killed a senator, or supposedly killed a senator. The FBI are going to be after him. And also, Nick Scratch. What's happened to him? Why are people listening to him? I don't really understand that. Has he got some kind of magic hypnotic power over people, or is he just a force of personality? He really doesn't make any sense in the entire context of this thing, and aside from sort of demanding that people leave Gotham, he doesn't really do anything. Why does he want Gotham dead? I still don't understand. Why does he have to kill the senator? And why did he kill the justices, try to kill the justices? It doesn't make any sense. This is just a confused mess of a story arc. And for that reason, I'm going to give it one out of five batarangs. The artwork saves it, but really, I don't understand what's going on. I wouldn't bother picking this up at all. It just isn't worth it. That's my review of the first couple of issues of The Road to No Man's Land. Next episode, we will be taking a look. Batman 560, Detective Comics 727, Batman Shadow of the Bat 80 and Batman 561. So tune in for the next episode for those issues. Pick them up, leave a review in the comment section and I will try and read them out for you. So thanks very much for listening and now I'll hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. (laughs) 
All right, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you are checking out the Bat Books for Beginners feed over on the website for additional content, including some listener Q&As for previous books that, in fact, John has covered. So with that, that would normally bring us into our listener Q&As, but unfortunately, because we uh, released the last episode, episode 113, about a week late, we don't have any listener Q&As to actually go over for this episode and we apologize for the delay in that episode. We should be back on track with the release of this episode. And if you are fixing for, or if you're hurting for your TBU fix, there's all kinds of other podcasts mm-hmm. that we have. If uh, one of our podcasts is releasing slightly late, uh, New Normal Cast is out. We have commentaries for Batman Brave and the Bold that are that uh, are releasing as we as. You're listening to this one has released and we're planning on releasing in commentary every single Ooh. two weeks. So every other week there will be a new commentary. So tons of stuff uh, from the TV series. You guys have asked for it. So we are bringing mm-hmm. you those. In addition to that, we have uh, some specials that uh, have posted, including a new special called TVU Collected for comic fans. It's particularly interesting because we are going to be reviewing some of the graphic novels, and collected editions of some of the miniseries that you would probably never have a chance for us to hear. You would never have a chance to hear mm-hmm. us review as it's something that we don't normally cover because it's not a monthly book. But we are doing that. The first one, as you are listening to this, has released the same day uh, where we review Gotham by Gaslight. And we have plans for many different releases coming out in the next couple months as well. So be sure to check that out as well. Also be sure to check out uh, Taking Flight, the podcast all about Robin, Batgirl the Oracle, the, the podcast obviously all about Batgirl over on the website. The Bat Fans release an episode every two weeks as well. Lots of different stuff that you can check out if you are hurting for your TBU fix. So that is everything for this episode. Be sure to check out the website for all the latest news related to not only the comic books, but also movie, TV, merchandise, video game, and general news, as well as editorials from the staff of the Batman Universe. In addition to that, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news and videos from the Batman Universe. You can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. You can leave us reviews on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated, as well as leaving your comments in the podcast post on the website for listener Q&As for the upcoming episode. That is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This this is Donovan. Neptune's beard! This is Stella. (laughs) You've been listening to the Batman Universe comic podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Save us from these books, please! Not all of them. by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Capullo. The issue starts off at Gotham's National Bank now as we find out that Harvey Bullock is on the scene as a bank robbery has taken place. Commissioner Gordon arrives only to find Bruce Wayne having a woman attached to 
at gunpoint. No, I'm trying to figure out why I can hear my son through my headphones, through the floor. He's turning into a bat. <clears throat> we see a woman. <clears throat> we see a woman at gunpoint. All right, hold on a second. This is going to piss me off. <laughs> Don't hurt him. Son, you know I'm recording. But, Dad, I don't want you to be recording. I want to play. Son, I was a stay-at-home mom with you all day. This is just a phase. You know I'm Batman, and I love you. I want to live with mommy and be an assassin. Where's my katana? Your mother is weak, and I am strong. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most most realistic quote. (laughs) You You weren't even dirt. You were silt. I took that silt and molded it in my image. Okay, let's try this again. Yeah, okay. And, you know, it was a... Stop. Yeah? That was Detective Comics. Was it really? Yeah. It was. yeah. Uh, but that well. was his last appearance, <laughs> so you're right, you're right there. Um, so... I don't even know how to rectify that. We'll just double <laughs> Okay. Or you could just take out the Dark Knight. So you know what we say about assumptions. Well, I mean, uh... I'll make an ass out of you. Uh... <laughs> I, you and me. Let's not forget that. <laughs> we both make two parts of an ass. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, that's that, that's a good point. Personally, the second there? question was like like. Uh, He's so far away. Where'd you go? Oh, where'd you go? Come hey, what? Back. You hear me? You suddenly disappeared. You went, and then all of a sudden you were far away. Can you hear me now? <laughs> Not nearly as loud as you were. Did you pull your mic? I don't think so. Uh, oh, there you go. Uh, how irritating. Uh, what was the question again? <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I just wonder why, like, I am also baffled, like Dustin is. I just don't understand why we happen to be, like, the negative voice. And I know that people... I think we're much better now, uh, but I know that people were complaining that we've always had these like negative views on it, but we're only being honest, and I, I think that we definitely give credit where credit is due, and even if we hate a book, there's always sort of something positive that comes out of it. Like, see, Dustin said, like, the art was good um, in this, but then, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I can't lie about this. Like, this is honestly what I feel. It just, I, I just don't know where the positive reviews come from. I don't know. I, well, don't I will understand. say that uh, I will say that I there are there are negative reviews for this book. Thank God. Uh, but like it was, it, I think like at least the majority, like sixty percent, were positive, and they were just like positive. They're like you know, this is a masterpiece and everything. And I'll say too that like you know, I will admit it's fun to rag on things that like are bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we're mature adults enough that like you know, if we recognize the difference between something that's actually bad and the difference between something we don't care for. Mm-hmm. Uh, case in point, I know we're not, we're not covering on this main podcast, but, uh, I recently read the latest issues of Red Hood and the Outlaws, and those were fantastic. I applaud Scott Lovedell for everything else he's done to me, for like, like, how he wrote Jason Todd and those issues. Those were absolutely fantastic. There's been issues with Catwoman I've, I've, I've enjoyed, you know, you know, I've, I've enjoyed Adam Beach's writings, despite what he did to Cassandra, Cassandra Kane. <laughs> we are not immature children who just want to hate things because, you know, we want to yeah. be hipsters or anything. Oh we call gosh. it like we see it. 
Yeah, I definitely don't. Oh my word! Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. I mean, like, this is we're not we're not joking. We're being we're being absolutely serious. And Dagger, honestly, at this point, it's become such a toothless, miserable joke that like I I really want to be good because I'm I'm kind of tired of losing my voice and screaming how pathetic it is. Have a nice day.